0: Hey, what is up? Welcome to another episode of Humans of Magic. My guest this week is Todd Anderson. Todd has been a competitive magic player for a very long time. Chances are you may know him from his absolute dominance during the Star City Games era. Todd was one of the winniest, if not the winniest, player during that time. And he has done so much. He's done writing, content creation, streaming, Casting, he still casts for Apex Gaming these days. The thing I respect most about Todd is that he is just a straight shooter. He always says it like it is. We go into a lot of things that I believe he hasn't talked about that much in the past, including his legacy as a deck builder. I think he's one of the most prolific, if underrated, deck builders of all time. So we'll also get into that. So please enjoy this conversation with Todd Anderson. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to give a little plug for my Patreon. Patreon.com slash This is where you can show a little bit of extra support for the show. This is something that I do part-time as a labor of love, as a passion project. And your support would help keep the show going. It's where you can get access to the exclusive Discord community, You can preview new episodes before they come out. If you choose the higher level tier, you can get the Humans of Magic digital book, where I've interviewed several prolific magic players in text format. That's quite an enjoyable thing if you're into that. And most importantly, just support the show. Your support means a lot, and I take nothing for granted. Now, let's get to the Todd Anderson episode. Do you still do po- you still do one for Lorcana? right?
1: Yeah. We just started one for Lorcana. I've been a guest on a bunch of podcasts for Magic, but I've never started my own. Felt like uh a little too much on my plate back when I was doing written content, traveling every weekend and uh you know, stuff for Star City, but nowadays I I'm asking myself why I don't have one.
0: Yeah. I mean, streaming is a lot of work, isn't it? I mean is streaming is still your main thing, is it not? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, So, my Twitch channel is currently, like, my main broadcast point, but I would say that I use Twitter, well, way more than I use anything else, and I know that's not really content, but, like, I keep up with everything Magic-related constantly, and when I do stream, it's usually just Pioneer, and it's just because that's one of the most pure formats left that people actually care about, and uh, I just really enjoy deck building, so it's been... that's I like streaming, but it certainly doesn't pay very much. And I use it more of like a a way to broadcast all my other stuff because I do have a a big following on there.
0: Yeah, this is kind of like inside content talk or inside baseball talk. But I, I often hear people say that streaming is more work than it's worth, but then it's just a way to get onto somebody's second monitor so that they're always you're always in there in the background like you're always your your face is always there so whether you're casting or you're streaming like it's just a way to get people to remember a certain person right even though it's technically harder work than maybe writing or uh having a patreon guide or tweeting or uh i guess it's not tweeting anymore but i still call it tweeting because i'm old <laughs> it's cheating so, a- 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 Jeeting, yeah zitting yeah exactly exactly so but i I feel like the stream audience has got to be the most committed, loyal audience, even if it's hard to get them, right?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, I I tell most people who want to start streaming that uh, it's a nightmare because you have to, like, come with some amount of background. Like, you can't just start from scratch because people just have, you know, their five streamers that they watch. And whenever one of them goes offline, they just swap to one of the other ones. And they go to those people because they... Make content about the formats that they like, or uh, they just like their personality, or, you know, they've just been following them for so long. And uh, if you don't have a background in the game already, uh, it's nigh impossible. And a couple of my friends have started recently, you know, and they're streaming to two viewers for hours and hours. And I tell them that it's important that you do it and it's important that you also uh use it for content on other platforms like you need to be posting on like tiktok and you need to be using youtube and making the youtube shorts as well and uh yeah one, one of the biggest things that helped me uh, in the last couple of years was just making a youtube channel to accompany the uh, the twitch channel because uh, it's just a place where all of your recorded stuff it'll eventually disappear into the ether twitch only holds it for like 30 days and um uh, If you don't have it on YouTube, it's just going to go away forever. So I've just been posting all my VODs to there. That's basically all I do, and it's successful. Like, people, whenever I go to events, it's rare these days, but when I do go to events, people come up to me, and they don't say, hey, I love your stream. I'm a big fan of, like, this deck you streamed the other day. They're like, I like your YouTube videos because I think YouTube just has a better hit rate for players because they can just engage with the content at their own discretion and on their own time frame, and yeah. uh, I just think you know that's way more important uh, to hit multiple points as opposed to just relying on on one entry point and into making content.
0: Yeah, it's always about repurposing. It's like you do it on one, but you can uh, almost repurpose or recycle it on different things. You can, I like to call it like remixing. You can cut it up, like you can <laughs> yeah. you can do little clips, and when people. F- type Pioneer on YouTube, they can still find your stuff, right? That's what it's about. Yeah. Um, I think you have been one of the most consistent folks doing Pioneer content for a while. And you've kind of been very out there and vocal about the format as well. Tell me about how you even started getting into Pioneer. Was that because you felt like there was a space there that no one was really quite hidden or was it related to events or what was it?
1: So uh, the day that they announced Pioneer as a format, it was like a Monday or a Tuesday. And uh, it wasn't on Magic Online yet. And I was supposed to stream that day. I've been streaming Modern for a couple months. I had moved to full-time streaming. Uh, my, Cal- uh, my wife Callie and I moved out to California uh, where she got a job working at Blizzard. And so I went from making like in-house videos with Star City Games, um, you know, to not. And so I needed more income than just like my weekly article revenue. So I decided to start streaming full time. I'd been on and off streaming for a couple of years at that point, mostly due to Internet issues from the one provider that existed in Roanoke at the time. And uh, when we moved to California, I didn't have that problem. And so streaming full time, I got super into modern playing all the time on Magic Online uh, because I just didn't really like Magic Arena that much. And then they say, hey, there's this new format coming out. It's Pioneer. It's Return to Ravnica Ford. And in my brain, that's just like maybe a perfect format because that's basically where the start of all the best standard formats came from in the last decade and change And uh, on day zero, I was on Magic Online playing against a friend of mine on stream, and it was immensely popular for the first uh, two months because of the aggressive uh, waves that they would do once every week or two, and so it was like a constantly evolving metagame that I was always on the top of, and I was pushing, and uh, I got really popular early on in, in Pioneer because of Monogreen Devotion. It wasn't even a deck that I originally built, but it was a deck that I saw looked good, and I iterated on it. Uh, and then within a week, there was a, a PTQ on Magic Online, and I was playing the Monogreen Devotion deck, and I ended up getting second on stream. It was a, a huge uh, psychological blow, you know? Losing the finals of something is always really tough when first place is like a an intangible prize, and second place is steak knives. And uh I still remember that moment fondly now in hindsight because people still talk about it. They're like, Hey, do you remember when you streamed Monogreen Devotion and Pioneer and and you blew up the Do you remember? Of course you remember, right? (laughs) Like it was yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, and so uh, you know, they ended up banning like five cards out of the deck and it's still really good and they're gonna ban Karn on Monday. So (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. This gives away when we record it. When we are recording this, yes, but so you do think that's going to be a a surety? I don't know if that is surety award, word or uh, it's a uh, certain thing.
1: It's not a certainty. It's it was heavily implied uh, by uh, Dan Musser on the uh, the the interview that they did. But regardless, Pioneer has been a place to brew decks, and uh, it has always been a place to brew new decks and making decks is one of the biggest pleasures for me in magic and being able to consistently have new sets affect uh, the card pool uh, in ways that actually can create new archetypes as opposed to just beefing existing archetypes. You know, it's extremely difficult to make standard power level cards and shove them into modern. And often when they do make it into modern, it's because there's some extremely powerful combination of things or, they just turn the dial a little too hard on design, and a lot of times those cards end up getting banned. And in Pioneer, sometimes that happens, but more often than not, you just have yet another Pioneer deck, which ends up being one of the most powerful things you've ever seen, but it still loses to Dossies. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's par for the course. Are you? I'm trying to figure it out by the way you described the format. But are you happy? okay overall with the way that Wizards has curated the Pioneer format?
1: I think that they have done uh, a relatively poor job throughout its history of maintaining what I would consider to be a healthy format. Uh, There was a long period of time uh, between the release, I believe, of uh, Theros Beyond Death, uh, where they printed, you know, Uro and a number of other problematic cards, Stasis Oracle, there was actually like a three to six month period where combo decks were just reigning supreme and there was like nothing we could really do about it. So most of us just quit playing for a while. And after enough people stopped playing, uh, they started banning stuff, but it was like way too late. There was like Tamir Inverter, uh, Ballista Heliod, uh, Lotus Field combo with Underworld Breach, and then Uro as like the de facto control finisher. And so like, you couldn't play an aggressive deck because Uro beat you and you couldn't play a control deck because the combo decks were like too strong. And the combo decks just morphed into control decks anyway, like the Demir Inverter stuff. So we had a, a really bad couple months there. It fell off a little bit. Then COVID happened. We all started playing from home only. Um, you know, I think Pioneer kind of died over the next two years where no one really was able to play it in paper and uh, people, you know, they didn't play standard at all either. And so the pipeline for a long time was play standard, your cards will rotate and eventually and you'll be able to play them in modern. And then they had a place to rotate and to play into, which was Pioneer. Um, but with no one playing standard because there were no tournaments and uh, most of the players who were buying cards were buying commander cards or they were buying things for modern that would specifically stay legal for like a long period of time. On top of that, the direct to print stuff for modern made it so like why would you ever bother playing standard? There's Modern Horizons one and two. These have a much larger impact on your most popular constructed format, Modern. Why would we play Standard? And then people don't have cards for Pioneer, and so no one plays Pioneer either. That was that was kind of the gist. Um, yeah,
0: what do you call that? Like not even a double whammy but a quadruple whammy of like a confluence of things just Yeah. It was like, re- it all was impacting bad. each other. Yeah. Some
1: stuff their fault, some stuff not. Um, they uh, they took a really heavy hand early, and then they kind of just like let it simmer for a while. And uh, I think they should have continued the aggressiveness in, in terms of banning for, for much longer. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. And uh, I think that uh, the last two years, uh, Callie and I, we ended up moving back to Roanoke. She worked at Star City Games for a little while, but now she's working at uh, Gen Con, uh, helping to put on that big show every oh, year. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, I was still writing for Star City Games for almost a year when we moved back as well. And then they did the big drop off uh, for the content creators. And so now we still live in Roanoke, but very few of our friends or family work for Star City anymore. They used to be like this huge hub of, uh, I don't know, just like a place where people who enjoy magic can can work and like right. be in, be involved in the industry. And now it seems like most people have moved on. And uh, But we're, we're still here. We uh, we love living here. You know, we have a bunch of friends that, that live here now, uh, transplants from all over, uh, as well as people who who just you know lived here even before we moved here. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. I'm hoping that yeah. uh, I'm hoping that uh, things come back in a big way for for Star City at some point, so that we can all uh, rejoice in
0: the collective
1: mm-hmm. uh, boon. <laughs>
0: I definitely want to ask you more about that, but I want to go back a little bit to what something you said. Yeah, And this is something I want to ask you because you're a very high level magic player and I feel like you're the right person to ask this question. I always feel like when it comes to format magic discourse, there's this kind of like top level players defending formats for having broken decks. But this is a terrible way for me to describe it. But like, I'm just thinking about the inverter era of Pioneer or the Splinter Twin era of modern, where it was possible to defend certain decks existing because they said it's very skill-intensive, very interactive. The mirrors were highly intensive. And yet there's this other voice, which is kind of like the, I'll call it the general magic public voice, which is like, these are not fun decks to play with or against. And they're pushing other decks out of the format. And I feel like you've always had a very balanced voice that kind of straddles the two where you are a high-level player like you understand how play patterns go and how skill wins out in these mirrors or like formats where decks aren't broken or maybe there's ways to uh fight it but at the same time you're also speaking for the every day magic player i've i always felt that like when i watch your streams or like read what you have to say like you what you look out for i don't know if it's intentional or not but you look out for like the the average Magic player that's trying to play these formats and, and you speak out when it's just not fun, even though you may personally, um, be okay with it, like from a competitive sense. So I'm wondering like how you see that situation. Is it just like ad nauseum, like this always happens where, (laughs) you know, like you have people who just want to always defend something. You have people that always just don't like power decks. Like how do you view formats from, these different types of lenses
1: so i think my understanding of magic uh comes from experience just you know two decades of playing uh, tournaments and uh just being completely devoted to the game in terms of uh being a student of it and also understanding that what sells magic as a game is the fact that it's fun and also the fact that it can be interactive where you and your opponent are basically just exchanging resources back and forth until one person comes out on top through a series of better decisions than the opponent and pioneer specifically those better decisions uh go past the game and into deck building sideboarding and mulganing way more than any other format i've ever played And what you end up uh, getting in Pioneer a lot of times is uh, a matchup between two decks where neither of them wants to interact. And so it becomes essentially a game of solitaire where two people are racing to the finish line, completely devoid of any interaction from the other side. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that there's zero interaction points. That just means that the amount of interaction on average is significantly smaller than your Thoughtseize deck or your Counterspell deck or whatever. A lot of these people, they pick up, let's say, Monogreen Devotion, and they get hammered by another combo deck. And they're just like, wow, Pioneer sucks. It's like, well, first of all, you chose the deck you chose because it's difficult to interact with. And its weakness is that it loses to other glass cannon combo decks because you're both ignoring each other. And they are on the extreme of... Uh, you know, let's say a fat like a one turn faster kill than Monogreen Devotion, but their exploitation points are significantly greater than Monogreen's exploitation points, which are essentially just pressure the elves or not. And so, uh, when it comes to like decks like Demir Inverter, for example, this is going to be the the one that I think most people latch onto the most because it was the one that was maybe the most volatile volatile ban uh, in the last five years. Um, it was Splinter Twin and However people want to argue with me on that, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's literally a two-card combo with one card that's pretty good to cast by itself, one card that's pretty mediocre to cast by itself, a ton of interactive elements from Thought Fatal Push, uh, card draw things, so you're playing like this control game. And then ultimately, you get to play one of the most degenerate draw spells of all time in Dig Through Time, and it's a functional part of how your deck wins the game by exiling your own graveyard. Now, you could make a, a significant argument that they should have banned Treasure Cruise and Dictor Time instead of Inverter of Truth. I would have been fine with that. I think many people thought that that's what they were going to do, because Treasure Cruise kept popping up, and Phoenix, and a no, number of other blue combo decks from, like, Just Guy Ascendancy Combo to, you know, anything else. I think that the people who really liked playing Demir Inverter still defend it to this day, and I think that they are somewhat right to do so, because it's a deck that they enjoyed playing And it did not have, like, an aggressive win percentage in terms of, you know, the 56% or 57%, which is usually the benchmark for this deck is too good. And so what ended up happening is you had this extremely complex deck uh, where five of the best Magic players in the world won a bunch of tournaments on Magic Online. And Magic Online was, like, the only place where you could really play it. And so the average win rate, though, of your normal player was somewhere closer to 48%, 47%. And then the best players would probably get close to 60%. I remember Gould Ducat, Canister, these were players just like crushing every event with with this archetype. As far as the reason why it was banned, I think it was because people just really despise losing in such a way that feels unnatural and... When you're playing against Demir Inverter, it's literally just a pure race from start to finish. And if you are not the one pressing the issue, you almost always lose. And even if you are pressing the issue, they can go Thought Seize you on 1, Fatal Push you on 2, do something else on 3, Inverter on 4, kill you on 5. And that was like every single game you played against them, they would have that curve more than likely. And you would lose. And in, in, I, I called it a flaccid win condition because the game would end in such a way that was not exciting to watch. It was not exciting to lose to it. And I can't imagine it was that exciting to win with it. You're literally just assembling a two-card combo that says, I win. And both halves of the combo are relatively difficult to stop because Inverter being in Enders the Battlefield Effect exiled you know your whole deck. And so the only way you could really interact with it was with a counter spell or a discard spell that took it preemptively. And then you have Thassa's Oracle, where even if you kill Thassa's Oracle, if there are zero cards left in the deck, you still win. And so you had these two just like really kind of messed up <laughs> cards working together in such a way that created some of the most unfun Splinter Twin-esque wins. That, and this is also just a couple years after Splinter Twin was banned in Pioneer. And they also had a precedent for banning two card combos like this because they banned Felidar Guardian because it did basically the same thing oh, with, right, with, yeah. with Sahili Rai. And mm. so I think it was a, a, a justifiable ban. People were overly mad about it. But long at the end of the day, man, like you just have to look at how do the games feel and as someone who played, you know, probably a 2,000 two thousand games in that specific Pioneer format it was not fun, and it made playing a lot of strategies against and Inverter actively frustrating to play against and with the deck. And I think I can sum it up uh, as, about as best I can in an, an, in an anecdote from one of my friends who plays casually. He used to watch my stream a lot, and he would play maybe one tournament a year. Uh, but uh, I went to Indianapolis for one of the, the Star City events uh, right before COVID lockdown, and and I played a mono-red deck that had uh, Collective Defiance, I think. It was the one where target player wheels, where they discard their hand and draw, but it also dealt four or three to player. And I just used that to kill Inverter players, straight up, because they would play Inverter, flip their deck, and then I would just wheel them and, and they would die. And uh, my buddy, uh, Little Nuki, he did the same thing because he was like playing the same thing as me, but he still lost to the deck a couple times. And as he was, like, playing the games, he was just like, yeah, they just had Inverter on 4 and Oracle on 5, and I died. I don't know why I even came. And that that sentiment alone is reason enough to ban something when a, a relatively new player just doesn't get it. And there are so many combinations in Magic where you just put two things together, and those two things say infinity. Because the game engine has limitations, and so... When you create two-card infinity, whether it's win the game or actual infinity, like creatures, damage, mana, whatever, you have to be extremely careful in a competitive environment where every single piece of the deck is geared towards finding and assembling the two-card infinite combo. And when you have an entire format, like Pioneer was for a little while, where it was Demir Inverter combo, uh, Heliod Ballista combo, which is another animal entirely... Um, and then Lotus Field combo, which was honestly just kind of a two card combo as well, because it was like Lotus Field plus Underworld Breach was just a straight up kill yeah. with so many cards. And uh, you just get to the point where it's like, oh, three of the best four decks all play this two card combo. Why Why would I bother? And that was a, a, a big sentiment for a couple months and ended up just leading to just an enormous number of bands all at the same
0: time. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So how. It's not the same logic, but how does the logic apply to something like Karn, which is really a one-card thing? It's not a two-card combo. Karn just, uh, it's it's broken in different ways, but how would you describe it exactly?
1: So Karn the Great Creator is a Swiss army knife uh, that its strength uh, grows almost, not quite exponentially, but it it grows significantly based on the amount of mana you have uh, at any given moment. Uh, I would say that if you have 10 mana, Karna is incredible. If you have 9, 8, 7, 6, it gets worse and worse and worse over the, over time. If you have infinite mana, you win the game. And so you basically add this 4-cost Planeswalker to a deck that plays Nyktho, Shrine, and Nyx, and it gives you an out to every scenario, it gives you a win condition, and it also gives you an infinite combo. Uh, and so... I don't think a mono green deck that is possibly the most explosive and consistent ramp deck I've ever seen. They do not deserve a win condition that can combo kill uh, as a one card Mm. thing. And card, Mm. the great creator, you know, through a series of uh, self owns like self goals or whatever own goals, what do they call it in uh, soccer? uh, Has effectively been able to become a combo card because of the card pestilent cauldron, right? Just like a nothing artifact from the Strixhaven set, because the back of it is a regrowth. And it even exiles itself as a protective measure against bringing it back and doing it over and over again.
0: Uh, that's what happened. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's at any time it can help you. It's a toolbox to get something else that's broken in conjunction with it. So Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. There's there's a, a lot of other reasons that Karn's being banned. You know, it, it limits your ability to play artifacts in the format. Um, you know, uh, the, the static effect on it is, is also just ex- extremely pressuring for so many decks. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. I, I, I thought Karn was going to get banned a year ago. I even, I actually was curious what, it, when I tweeted that it was going to get banned in the next three months. It was October of last year. I said it would get banned in the next, uh, three months. Uh, I'm All about right. a, a year off, but pretty close.
0: <laughs> Better late than never, I guess, if it's good for the format that is. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Admittedly, I'm coming. I'm really showing my my lack of understanding of the Pioneer format. Like, no, uh, no. I'll just let you know. I am probably most well versed with Legacy and Modern. So it's really interesting to hear about how. You know, I, I understand what you're saying about Pioneer. It's like two ships passing the night. There's like, if you have extreme non interactivity or like extreme predetermination in terms of how games play out, they're not fun. That's just kind of like the how it's always been for legacy, like legacy is just inherently a broken format that has to be curtailed by,
1: but it's not okay. Because both legacy and modern have, there's checks
0: though. Sure.
1: Yes. They have checks. And for a long time, modern was exactly like
0: pioneer and it didn't have checks. Yeah. uh, pre modern horizons. Modern was like two ships passing the night. That's how people always described it.
1: Right. And it's because the, the more powerful format becomes, uh, the more more decks become like runaway trains where they start small but if you just add a little piece every single turn, there's nothing that a deck can do outside of having a button that just says, I win. And so what you end up getting is threats that are slightly too powerful for the removal that beats them and then people who just don't play that sub game and ignore that sub game in order to do two-card combos. And then you have control decks that exploit the combo deck you know, versus uh, beating beating up on the aggro decks. Um, the addition of a bunch of free spells, not even the elementals from
0: Modern Horizons 2, but just... Yeah, just force of negation and stuff right. like that.
1: Force of negation, I think, single-handedly put like a big band-aid over Modern as a whole, and uh, it made it significantly more interactive. And I, I remember when they first made Modern Horizons 1, uh, you know, myself, Ross Merriam, and a number of other... People who worked uh, on like versus live and and other content avenues like we played a lot with force mitigation to to just see how good it was like similar and how similar it was to like force of will and alongside uh, things like young pyromancer it helped generate control decks in a place where those types of control decks did not exist before archmage's charm similarly really strong uh, did something yeah. very similar and that was even a time I think when. Um, Mystic Sanctuary was legal as well, and so we were able to basically play, like, Mono Blue Control, Splashing Young Pyromancer, and we got to play Force Negation, and that was enough, and that was, like, a good control deck. Now, you know, the it's pushed far beyond, uh, in the other direction with the pitch elementals. So like grief fury, these are ways to disrupt hand or creature in like really annoying ways, like an, not, not annoying, really efficient ways that are annoying. If you're on the other side of the coin and, yeah. uh, solitude very similarly is extremely powerful, uh, abusable with things like, uh, the flicker effects and, mm-hmm. uh, and we even see you know out of the Recto Scam decks while they're about to get taken out uh, out back like old yeller you know like they have been <laughs> extremely dominant uh, ever since the the pro tour and even before the pro tour Recto Scam was widely considered to be the best deck and it was it's because of the evoke elementals they allow for a an uh an interaction point that is earlier and more impactful than any cards that've been printed and that's kind of
0: similar to what you described for pioneer with inverter right because if you've got the goods in your hand the opponent just doesn't really get to do anything
1: yeah and so whenever you pair a two card combo into a deck where both of the pieces just work kind of fluidly and inside the shell um it becomes uh a question more of what is the cost what is the opportunity cost Of playing with these cards and when it becomes when it comes to like splinter twin uh from back in the day the card deceiver Xark kind of stinks and the card splinter twin without deceiver Xark is a zero doesn't do anything and uh and so you get to this point where you have to ask like what does it cost to play these cards in a control deck in some games you draw two or three of the splinter twins and you die uh because you just don't draw the other piece uh, your opponent has one answer instead of like you them having needing two answers or or what have you, and uh, in Pioneer specifically, the tools uh, for interacting with your opponent are not nearly as strong, but they are strong compared to just like the overall card pool. Specifically, Fatal Push and Thoughtseize are two interaction points that allow you to cover both extremes. Thoughtseize lets you. Uh, interact in a way that prevents combo decks and control decks from interacting with you in the early turns. And Fatal Push buys you enough time against the aggro decks so that you can actually assemble the combo. And so when one combo deck gets to play both of these extremely potent uh, pieces of interaction, they are covered from both sides. And then it becomes a question of whether or not your opponent is able to dodge one or both. Of these methods of interaction, and and in, when you're playing Demir Inverter, you can actually just if they if if one of your two uh, interaction points is good, then you're fine. You just have bought yourself enough time because the combo itself is just a little too hard to interact with. Like it's just slightly too hard to interact with uh, against either push or thoughtsies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Are you overall optimistic? Not optimistic about competitive formats in general, like in just how Wizards has, um, managed them. I I know your, your, your lifeblood is that of a competitive player. I don't think you're about to go into commander content or other types of things anytime soon. So is it like these 60 card formats, do they, do they do it for you? I know obviously a big part of it is like, it is kind of your job to, to stay on top of things, but how do you feel about it overall?
1: So, on top of streaming and and physically playing games and watching streams and stuff all the time, I also have been doing like a significant amount of commentary uh, specifically over modern events. And what I've seen in modern is a a lack of understanding from higher ups uh, in terms of what the new cards are actually doing, like how they are warping the format itself. And so it makes it a little disheartening when, you know up the Beanstalk, for example, comes out, they say they have this short window to ban on this one day that's about a, 10 days after the set's released or whatever. And the 10th day comes, everyone who's been playing it on Magic Online knows that it's busted. Everyone who uh, is prepping for the weekend's events at Apex Gaming are aware that Beanstalk is busted. And if these people who play the game are aware, but the people who make the game are not, you have to see that there's. That's kind of some... scary. There's a disconnect. There's just a disconnect. And the thing is, the way that they release cards now, they release so many uh, over the course of a year that it's very easy for some to slip through the cracks. And we've seen from, uh, you know, like the mono-white, the Plume Veil Adventurer, what's it called? I'm sorry, White Plume Adventurer, for example, the Initiative Mechanic in legacy was detrimental to the format and i i still think it it shouldn't exist in general i think they should have instead of banning some cards they should have just reworked the mechanic yeah, and in initiative
0: general. is still strong in legacy actually
1: so. right and um but what ended up happening is that they just made some cards for this like commander product or whatever or conspiracy product you know like do you remember true name nemesis we're going to get a little Abs- old here. Absolutely.
0: No, no, I, I am that old. Yes, I do yes. remember when it was the broken thing in Legacy for a very long time.
1: Yeah, so that card was printed in a commander precon because when it comes into play, you choose an opponent and that person is your nemesis. I don't know a single person who's ever put that into Commander.
0: Deck. It's actually beyond useless in Commander, the right. format's designed for.
1: But what it did was it sold those pre cons to people who played Legacy and at the time we had to play a lot of Legacy on the SEG tour. And so we had to buy the precons to get the cards. The same with for Containment Priest, there was like a mono white deck that had Containment Priest in it. And even Containment Priest was like a twenty dollar card for a long time. Yeah, yeah,
0: before they reprinted the heck out of it. I remember right. that.
1: And so what ends up happening is that they they make cards to sell products to a wider audience than what the intended audience is for the and product no guard itself. Rims.
0: Yeah, and I'm thinking yeah. of Infinity and all this other stuff too. So.
1: Yeah, and and Infinity is 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 particularly uh, Infinity, egregious. Sorry, yeah. It's particularly yeah. egregious, right? Because it's very clear that Infinity is for maybe 1% of the magic population, but In order to sell it to more people, in order to convince stores to buy this product that's very clearly a gimmick for a small audience, they say, hey, these cards are now, uh, they're legal in Commander, they're legal in Legacy, they're legal in Vintage, because they can do it, right? Yep. And now we just have, like, you know, Comet Stellar Pup just ruining games on turn four <laughs> yeah. because you, you roll a bunch of D6. I remember having the hydro blasts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's all fun in games until you play against a three-cost goblin that's like guaranteed yeah. to make six mana or whatever. Yeah, right? I had
0: a I had a friend at the Legacy event explain to me the sticker goblin and all those stickers that he was putting in his deck box, and it was insane. Yeah, it was just like, oh my gosh, I can't even wrap my head around this.
1: Yeah, and, and I really don't mean to, to talk badly about folks who work at Wizards, because I, I actually have quite a few friends that work there, and... I know how Same. difficult of a job it is to create and market and yeah. test and tune all this type, uh, yeah. all these types of cards,
0: um, but
1: I also recognize that when those things do fall through the cracks,
0: there needs to be some action. fast responses, yes. and understanding of what reading the room and re- right, basically, right. Um,
1: yeah. So, uh, are you? Do you know um, Hall of Famer Frank Carson?
0: Yes, Frank and I have actually met several times face to face. Yeah.
1: Uh so I actually invited Frank uh to our we had a Lorcana invitational up at Apex Gaming back in uh October. And I invited him to to come and he uh accepted, but he asked if he could stay with me for like a week in between so that he could go to this other tournament that we were gonna go to. And I said, Of course. And so I got to hang out with Frank Carson for a week, which was incredible That's awesome. because he's just a, a genius. Um but what ended up happening was that I learned that, like, he's uh, one of the main writers for uh, the main Wizards website when it comes to... Yeah, for the
0: mothership, yeah, yeah.
1: Right, when it comes to specifically tournaments. So, like, when uh, preparation for regional championships, uh, what's coming up, aftermath, metagame reports, blah, 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 right? This is roughly... eight days after the new set has come out. Uh, I think technically it's only three days after it's been released live in live play, but it was about eight days after it had been released on Magic Online. And I had already played a bunch, watched a bunch of Aspiring Spike streams, Doomwake streams, other, other good player streams that were all just playing Beanstalk, Beanstalk, Beanstalk. And they were just doing the most egregious things I'd seen in Modern in quite some time. But they were, instead of being a combo deck, they were a control deck with the dial turned up to 11 because every single time you would play one of the pitch elementals, it would replace itself. And the the only downside of these elementals is that it, it's a two-for-one on the reverse side to, to use their abilities. And when you have a card that you can uh, build a cascade deck around where every single time you do it, you actually gain resources when the card Commandeer becomes main deckable,
0: something is wrong. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Yes, and, it's just and, too ultra-efficient, that engine, and it's just like, yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> and so when Frank is here, uh, we're talking about it, and he is mostly unaware of this deck. He, he he has heard about it. He has not really seen it in action. And again, this is only about three days. This is like the Monday or Tuesday after a Friday release, but it's been on Magic Online since the Wednesday before or the Tuesday before, and mm-hmm. and so I'm explaining to him the deck, and he goes, "Oh, that's pretty good, I think." And I go, and I have to explain to him, you know, basically the the play patterns, uh, why that they're they're like too good or too bad or whatever for for the health of the game. And he goes, "Yeah, it's just an uncommon, right?" And I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, they they probably should have banned that." <laughs> Like, cause, but <laughs> but the way that they had limited limited themselves in the ban window, they didn't have enough time to get the information on 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 what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so you know they it just kind of got glazed over. But then we had you know a tournament the next weekend at uh, Apex where Beanstalk was not really like that big of a problem because only two people played it in the event, but the play patterns on it and the best builds of it are just egregious and. We didn't even really start fully understanding how to build the deck until recently, because now, um, you know, there's people like Oliver Tomiko, uh playing last night on uh, Switch Gaming or whatever, where they are using Time Warp with Endurance to just infinite turns you. Mm-hmm. And they just never run. I mean, they run out eventually, like it's not actually infinite, but how many, how many turns do you really need in a row? But like, if you can just guarantee your deck is only 10 cards and one of them's a Time Warp, like... The game's over, man. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's kind of worrying is the fact that um, there's a kind of lack of awareness. Because what you're saying is that basically formats or chain or new sets, uh, how they impact formats. Like from day one, people are streaming, playing Moto. Like they're figuring it out. So the the if there's tech or if things are broken, it gets figured out extremely fast. And like basically literally day one or maybe day zero. Uh, but then Wizards not really having a good safeguard or mechanism or response mechanism to all this that's always been the case right i guess they just never well, level up their capabilities in that or has it regressed
1: i i don't know if it's regressed they have a they have a system in place to my understanding where they effectively have one to two people in-house that they're one of their jobs is to monitor a format to make sure that things aren't going haywire and even if those people do bring up red flags like beanstalk It still takes like a week or two of discussion um, and more evidence, right? They just always Mm -hmm. want to be extremely sure before they make any of these decisions because they understand that banning a card has significant impact on the players, uh, the retailers, secondary market, things like that. Sorry to
0: interject, but when we talk about like data and more evidence, isn't that just obvious if you just do data analysis? Like if someone, like it's not even, sometimes it doesn't even have to be like a human call. It could literally just be like, a bot that says like this that says this card is so prevalent and it's winning this percentage of matches, right? I would have to assume.
1: So it depends on where you're extrapolating your data from. It's very difficult to extrapolate a significant amount of data uh, from like the populace as a whole over a short period of time. That's true. And if yeah. you use data from specifically Magic Online, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Because it's such a small pool of players that are all extremely, extremely aggressive in terms of metagaming, deck swapping. Yeah. Uh, you know, the cutthroats are willing to switch decks at a moment's notice. And when they see something new that looks really powerful, they bombard it. And mm-hmm. what ends up happening is you just have uh, a, a wave of people playing like Boros Convoke and Pioneer right when it first came out, right? <laughs> And so uh
0: kind if, of a self fulfilling prophecy. People just all jump onto it, and then the right. the, the data will be skewed. Yeah. Right.
1: And so they need just more time for things to kind of level out. Um, they need to see if the form, if players and formats can naturally adapt. And right.
0: That's that's fair.
1: For a lot of cards, it's perfectly fine to wait. Uh, but when you when the play pattern becomes cast a beanstalk, draw a card. Okay, pitch an elemental, kill your thing, draw a card. <laughs> pitch an elemental, kill a thing, draw a card. Just the first time you see that happen, you should be uh, completely... Something's not right here. Yeah. Yeah. You just need to be more aware. Mm -hmm. And um, that's it. Beanstalk is probably going to go as well as my guess, but whatever.
0: Okay. my, My heuristic is that when things make their way to Legacy even, or basically all the formats, then something is pretty... Is, is well worth watching, right? I mean, you've got Legacy and, like, people playing Hooting Mandrills and, like, uh, again, and, of course, Murktide. Like, you're just drawing cards, and it's just pretty... I think that's died down a little bit in the format. But, yeah, it was pretty hot for a while, for a minute there, too. I gotta so. say, man,
1: Murktide Regents also cards I'm not a big fan of. Uh, I played... I mean, we, we we talked about this a little before we started, but, like, I've been playing, like, aggressive blue decks basically my entire career, from Delver of Secrets to... Uh, Splinter Twin, you know, uh, just I love playing a one drop and then defending it with everything I have, and Delver of Secrets kind of encapsulates that for me because it's such an efficient threat. Tide Regent is a like two cost minimum seven seven or whatever, maybe six six or five five if you're very unlucky, and it flies. <laughs> I don't get Eat it, Asian. man. And it, and it even has more than that, because if you play another delve spell, it gets even bigger. So, you know, the the fact that it's dominating in Legacy and, and it was dominating in Modern for some time, it's not a shock to me, uh, because I already thought the card was far too good uh, as is. And uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, I just don't get it. I don't understand yeah, how that There was a made.
0: microsecond when it was spoiled and people were like, is it good and then a microsecond later yes it is very good so there's a to play the card to know it's good
1: (laughs) yeah there's a card that was printed into uh like legacy only i think through a commander set or one of those it it was like blue blue five and it was a three three flyer i think and whenever you attack with it you can play one of the cards that it delved
0: that's... Yeah, it was a Ethereal forger. It was the yes. whale. I loved that thing for a very long time. That was my yes. one of the cards I loved. Yeah, but it Super was completely cool. obsoleted. So.
1: Right, and but it also played a game in a significantly different way, where if you didn't deal with it, it would slowly yeah. accrue advantages over time, whereas Tide region, if you don't deal with it, <laughs> it kills you in two hits. It just kills right. you. There's no right. counterplay other than removing it. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. That's basically just the difference in card design over the last couple of years is like Merctide Tide Regent is allowed to exist, uh, but like I can't play Green Sun Zenith or whatever. Like
0: mm-hmm. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I guess the defense is that it's just a creature, dies to removal, something, some very yeah. simplistic explanation for it. But... but it even dodges unholy heat, which is
1: like one of the premier removal spells from Modern Horizons. Like it's just too big for any right. red removal spell to hit. They made right. a red removal spell that can kill Primeval Titan for one mana. Yeah, and it cannot kill Murktide Regent most of the time.
0: Not not that uh, I'm a designer, but at least make it like like that um, that four four drop five five illusion, where if you target it, it just dies or something. You know, like have some drawback.
1: Some drawback? <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? Some drawback? Creatures don't have drawbacks anymore,
0: man. No, they're just they're just spells on a stick. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> so. I also wanted to ask you, like, I guess going back to uh, you moving back to to Roanoke, by the way, I didn't know that you were back in Roanoke Mm. uh, because I I thought you were still on the West Coast, but Mm. that's probably why we got our time zones mixed up. (laughs) Um, uh, I have been to Roanoke once. It is a very nice place. And uh, you mentioned just being back uh, with your wife and uh, a lot of people are not there anymore. And like, so are you guys just going to be there for the foreseeable future? I guess because of work circumstances and whatnot.
1: So, we both work from home. Uh, We
0: both, I mean, I
1: make my own schedule. She has her schedule that's like pretty much, she gets to work the hours that she chooses. And uh, neither of us are really tied down here in terms of family or work. And so, we have the ability to move if we need to. But we also have, uh, you know, a house here. So, it's like hard to just sell your house and pick up, especially when we don't have a reason to. So, just more so waiting for a reason. But, yeah. You know, just down the street, Ross Merriam lives and uh, with a couple of other friends of mine and you know, we go over there on the weekends and hang out and play yard games and we go out to lunch with some of the some of my other friends like once a week or twice a week and it's a an easygoing life that's pretty good and you know, I get to make the content I want for
0: a living. It's pretty great. Where did you grow up actually? It must have not been in Roanoke, right?
1: No, uh, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Big Alabama fan. Roll Tad. Hope they beat Georgia tomorrow. But uh, we'll see if if they're able to defeat them. Um, I moved back and forth between Alabama and Georgia a couple times uh, growing up. Uh, My dad lived in Georgia. My mom lived in Alabama. Yada, yada.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you just find magic at a young age? Like, How did that happen?
1: Yeah, one of my best friends... Uh, was just like playing it with another friend of mine at his house one day when i when i walked over like he lived a couple of houses down from me or whatever and uh you know they're just sitting on the floor playing this new game that i would never heard of called magic and one one of them's got uh you know prodigal sorcerer with curiosity on it like hit and a card and the other one's got uh you know big black creatures and removal spells that can kill them and I learned how to play that day and never really stopped since. And that was when I was 12 years old, maybe younger.
0: Were you always a gamer? Or were you competitive in any way before that?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, even throughout high school, heavily competitive in sports, uh, baseball, basketball, football. I even ran track for a year. Uh, never really stopped being competitive. I have an older brother who is a year and a half older than me. And we were on like the same sports teams a lot growing up. And we would challenge each other all the time at live games, video games, sports, whatever. You name it, I'm, I'm competing. We even had um, this program in elementary school called Accelerated Reader, where whoever read the most books and took the most tests on the book, uh, it, you'd get points based on how well you did on the tests. And whoever got the most points at the end of the year got a bike. And I didn't have a bike, and I wanted a bike. <laughs> and you better bet your ass i read gone with the wind that year which was worth a lot oh of gosh. points and i won yeah. the bike
0: <laughs> gone with the wind did you read war and peace did you find like all the all the longest no, novels out look, there man
1: i read a lot of books i probably read more books than anyone in that school that year but i also cheese the system because you just take a test on the book and you know, what is a movie is Gone with the Wind, which I had seen. <laughs> and so I thought, I bet I can probably pass this test without even reading the book. And I did. And I got, you know, an eight you were out right. Of... Yeah. And I got all the points for it. So suck it, nerds. But that's how competitive I am, right? I find ways to to stretch the engine, to to push the system.
0: But it started with you and your brother. Is that like at home? Is that kind of how it always goes? I mean, maybe, uh, you know, when he's like beating up
1: on me, it feels like I'm not really doing a whole lot of winning. But then when I finally start fighting back and I I find ways to like, you know, pinch him so he stops messing with me and I find ways to make it. It's like when you train with
0: the weighted vest and then you take off the vest, you suddenly realize you're powerful. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no my,
1: uh, my brother and I, we, uh, we were very competitive, but I love him a bunch, but uh, I, I don't get to see him that much because he lives in Georgia and I live in Virginia, but uh, mm. I get to see him okay. around Christmas and I got to see him during the summertime, so I'm, I'm excited yeah. about it. And Maybe we'll play some football in the yard and I'll tackle his ass.
0: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how being an athlete or being a competitive athlete, like how that influences your <laughs> approach to other things like magic, perhaps. Uh,
1: So I grew up with uh, a stern father uh, who my relationship with him now is significantly different than when I was a kid for the better. Uh, But when I was growing up, he was a a teacher, but he was also a coach. And he was regularly like our coach in sports. And since my brother and I were only one grade apart, uh, I was born at the end of I was born in May, which is like the end of the school year. He was born in October, which is like the beginning of the school year. We were only one grade apart even though he had a significant edge on me physically. But I was really smart, and I figured out a lot of stuff, even in sports, where I could use my knowledge to my advantage uh, in a number of ways. But just growing up in a household where you're just like always expected to be in an after-school sport because otherwise I have to sit around for two hours while my dad coaches these teams or whatever – Instead, I chose to be a part of them and, you know, try to outdo my brother. That was, like, the whole thing. Try to, like, make your dad proud. Um, but, I, you know, I, I got that competitive spirit very early on from just competing with my brother and everything. And then uh, at some point, sports became less of a priority for me. and But I still had that, like, competitive spirit. And when I figured out that, like, magic tournaments existed, I think I was in 10th grade and i had all but stopped playing sports at that point and i decided that i was just going to play a bunch of magic and i started traveling with uh, a buddy of mine blair simpson in birmingham uh, he was he was actually like you know 25 and i was 16 or 17 and my mom at first was like I don't know if you should be traveling long distances with a man who's 25 years old or whatever. He's like was, a big
0: brother. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but you know, but like he came over to the house and like my mom met him and he became, you know, uh a friend of the family on top of all that. And so he was the best man at my wedding, I was the best man at his wedding uh, a couple years ago, and uh you know, ever ever since then, uh ever since I was 16, 17 years old, he's been the guy who drove me to all the tournaments but uh keeping up the uh the competitive spirit or whatever it wasn't very difficult because playing in magic tournaments is really fun
0: why did you drop from sports just got tired of it
1: uh when i was in uh ninth grade i had a i wouldn't say a serious injury to my neck but i had an injury uh, to my that's neck. that's always was, what happens it was very yeah. scary and uh when i tried out for basketball that year um the injury was like still there and i actually like had to warp my shot to to have it not hurt when I was shooting, because it was on like oh, the, the side of my neck where I shot from, and yeah. um, and so after that happened, I was like, "Well, my shots ruined. Like, why? I don't want to play basketball anymore. I don't want to play football anymore because I don't want to break my neck." And then when I went to play baseball, I was still throwing with the same arm, and I had to start throwing side arm, and it just was way worse.
0: So it's just over having to overcompensate for that. Yeah, that's yeah. rough
1: but yeah. I, I don't really feel that injury anymore but you know it's like far too late for any of that stuff but
0: uh okay
1: that was basically why i quit playing sports that and um we bounced around between households quite a bit and uh, when i was in 10th grade i bounced like back to my mom's instead of leaving, living with my dad so the expectation to play sports dissipated uh, i still wanted to and when i tried out i couldn't or didn't, you know, it wasn't like a comfortable feeling to throw a ball, and so I just get, you know, kind of gave
0: up. Your dad being a coach, uh, you know, at the same school you're going to, did you, did you feel some sort of pressure to, uh, to perform at a certain level to, <laughs> to please him?
1: Yeah. Yes. Of course. Uh, the, the thing that comes to mind uh, immediately when I was in ninth grade, we just had gym class and but one day we were running the mile right and the mile like as a grown-up i know a mile's not very far but when you're a kid elementary school middle school high school the one mile run is how you define feels
0: long it feels yeah. long
1: but it's also uh it defines how in shape you are or how um just like physically able you are and i remember when I was in as young as like fifth grade, uh, I ran like an eight minute mile, and I was like, "Oh man, this is so cool! I feel on top of the world. I'm like so mm-hmm. strong and good and fast." Ninth grade comes around. Um, I'm not really like stoked about my living conditions. I I think that at some point in the near future, I'm gonna be like moving back to my mom's, and I was right. It just took like an extra year, but. I remember one day, he's the the gym coach, and we're going to go outside and run the mile, and it's like first or second period of the day. It's cold outside, probably, you know, 45, 50 degrees, and, which is cold for Georgia. And, uh, you know, we're out there in gym shorts, kind of freezing my butt off, but it's like ideal crisp, crispiness conditions for running. And I remember I sprinted the entire mile that day and i ran the fastest mile i ever ran and i was never able to hit that marker again i ran a 525 mile and i was doing it for my dad as a big screw you dad i want to go live with my mom you know but i'm gonna show you that this is who i am or whatever i just yeah. i remember that show that him that peak performance yeah oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> I was. I remember. I was like. There was. It was like a big running track, and I just remembered. I was in the inside lane, and I was just like, coming through, coming through. Like people are just walking in the middle lane. I'm like, get out of the way. I'm trying here. You know. I'm like really trying.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, but as you said, right, your your relationship with your dad has changed over time, so. um I can just visualize him as being, like, a a coach that was, like, yelling at people. Just kind of like an old-school coach was that kind of thing, right? I don't know if that's fair to say or not. (laughs) So everyone
1: loved my dad. Uh, They all called him Coach Mario because he had just, like, really dark hair, mustache, kind of looked Italian or whatever. If you saw a picture of him, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's Coach Mario. Um, That wasn't his name. People just called him that after the Mario Brothers. But uh, for everyone else, he was uh, – probably the best coach that they had but for me it was always like when we get home he's going to stress where i messed up or whatever right and so there was Mm -hmm. always like an extra layer of uh you need to be better you need to do better but also he couldn't show us favoritism because we're his children and if he shows us favoritism in any way you know he gets right uh, that's kind of like the
0: code of sports is that if you're coaching your son or daughter like you can't you can't take it easy on them. You right. can't. You can't show any, like, uh, what's the word, like, nepotism or, like, pre- yeah. preference. Yeah. Right.
1: Exactly. And so... Uh, so you have yeah. to go
0: extra hard to criticize your your children, basically.
1: Right. Uh, and so, you know, living with that was, was a little tough. Um, but he he wasn't just, like, a sports coach. He, he was also just the gym coach and the weight training coach or whatever. And so mm. I had one to two classes with him every day and also he was the coach for most of the teams i played for in in ninth grade which was like the football team um he his office was right next to the head basketball coach's office so even when we were doing basketball in ninth grade he was there and he was like the coach of the jv team which i was also on so there there was just like he was just always around and i was always like expected to be at a certain level of performance and even if he didn't say it, it was always implied. And if I ever, like, fell below the imaginary marker, I made myself feel like crap well before he ever made me feel like crap because of it. Um, but that's just, like, not who he is anymore. Like, he's mostly retired. I think he works half days now. Uh, I went and visit him uh, back during the summertime. And we were just, like, two bros hanging out because we don't have kids. And uh, when you, like, grow up and become... You know, uh, an, I don't want to say I'm an expert in the field of magic, but I feel like, you know, maybe I'm. Pretty I'll cool. say
0: it. you are. Sure. Okay.
1: So when you reach that level in your field and you're old enough where, like, your kids would be almost grown up by now if you had them when you were 18 or 20 years old, uh, which most of the people in my family, when they have kids, that's the age that they're having them in. Um, you don't have to answer to your parents anymore because they're getting to the, like, an old enough where they're going to have to start listening to you when you become like head of the household. Right. Right. And we're almost at that point, but neither of us want to say it. But when I, <laughs> when I visited, we just like sat around and played games and talked and that was it. And I just got to ask him every question that I ever wanted to ask him when I was a kid, nothing was off limits. And I asked him some, some like pretty intense stuff. Cause I remembered a lot of stuff from when I was a kid that was like washed over, uh, family drama, uh, you know what happened in this situation with my mom, blah blah blah. And he was completely honest, and that uh, was just like a new experience for me. And you know, ever since we've just been like talking on the phone all the time, and it feels good. Mm-hmm. So
0: that's relatable, man. So my parents are separated, and I would definitely say my parent, my relationship with both of them has gone better, and it's just gone much more in perspective. I'll say as I'm older. Because when you're younger, you kind of you're choosing sides, you see some part of the story or the picture. And you're also living your life as as a kid and it's just it's just being being young or being a kid is pretty tough, I mean, I would say in general. Like you're just dealing with a lot of stuff and yeah. it's it's nice to like look back on it and not treat your parents as <laughs> there being some sort of, like just as people, like they're they're just people. Right. As opposed to like some kind of power dynamic that I was dealing with when I was younger, kinda like, you know? Yeah. Like I felt like everything I said or did had consequences. And it, it, it they really don't. But like at that moment it just always feels like I could fuck up. I could always like you know, so I, I yeah, relatable. Relatable. Very much so. Um yeah. is, is, with is... my brother too, like it's gone so much better over time. Oh that's with my, great. my one sibling. So yeah.
1: Now, the uh, the meeting as equals or whatever was a, a very strange experience uh, because I had just never been able to talk to him like that in, in my mm. past. Uh, but he he was actually is funny. Uh, he actually got out like a lot of old pictures and stuff from when he was uh, my age and younger. And he was heavily invested in um, not rec league baseball. What's the minor league baseball? He played a ton of minor league baseball. And was, like, very close to getting drafted one time and was scouted a couple times when he was in high school. But he spent a lot of his 20s playing minor league baseball. And when I was telling him about the tournaments that I went to and the places that I went to play Magic and, like, winning tournaments and doing well and, like, you know, joining teams, having my picture taken or whatever, he was, like, seeing all this stuff and showing me. And he was just like, we're the same. Like, we... And right. We, there's we, parallels. <laughs> right. Yeah. But we we like we kind of look the same. We definitely act the same. And our trajectories in our twenties were almost exactly the same. And so the only difference is he had a family uh, with three kids uh, or four kids. Yeah. And then, but I I ended up like not having any kids myself. And uh, but like it was just such a strange feeling, just like looking in a. looking at the dorian gray picture or whatever right yeah (laughs) yeah
0: or as i like to say like you just wake up one day and you're like oh shit i'm i am actually my parents like i didn't know but i just i just became my parents like that's just like inadvertently or whatever or genetically something you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) um tell me about a little bit about uh the whole scg journey right because that was such a big part of your life yeah it was uh in your in your 20s for a, a big part of your life and you're one of the most winningest scg players of all time and <clears throat> there you go yeah so for those <laughs> on the visual <laughs> podcast you can see all the the trophies back there and uh it's also there's also a big card is that also something that you you won or uh
1: so the big cards are so the the Catan is that was named Catan. The Cthod of the Wild was one of the prizes for winning the state championships one year. Uh, uh, okay. The other one, the one you can see behind me on this side, uh, if you're watching the visual, uh, that's a big version of my Beast token, which was given to me uh, as yeah, like yeah. A, a thing from Star City Games. But even now, whenever they have one of their SEG cons, my token is something you can get from their prize wall, right? I and, think I have
0: one of your tokens. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: I'm, you know, I. Look, Star City games may have gone a different direction than uh, than I wanted them to in the last three years, but I think that market forces and world events that were out of their control have basically put them into a corner in terms of what they can afford and what they cannot. And I don't want to speak for them. I don't have that much inside information in terms of why they made the decisions they made. But I am incredibly thankful for the time I got to spend uh, got to spend traveling and working for Star City. Uh, I started working for them in, I think it was 2008. I won the Alabama State Championships. I was playing Blue Black Fairies when it was in standard, but it was like a a fresh iteration, a big rotation. It just happened. And it was like Win plus Shards of Alara was the standard format. And so the removal spell went from being like Terror to Agony Warp. The Counterspell went from Mana Leak to being uh, like Essence Scatter or re- even Remove Soul. I can't remember exactly. So it was like, but it was Blue Black Fairies, you know, Bitter Blossom, Thoughtseize was legal still. That was also
0: when Negate came out, right? That was with, was it with Shards or am I misremembering? The Gate, right. what did you say? Negate. Oh, Negate. Negate. As in the counter the Counterspell.
1: Yeah, maybe that was one of the first times Negate came out. It I can't... probably wasn't a player back then, but
0: anyways, yeah.
1: No, it's fine. Um but anyway, I played Blue Black Fairies. I won my state championship. It was the first time I won states and um I just remember that was like right about the time that uh Channel Fireball had started up and they had poached a bunch of authors from Star City Games and uh I just like contacted their contact page and was like, "Hey, I, I you know, I see that y'all y'all have lost some writers, like I would love to to audition." And Uh, I forgot, I think his name was Craig something, I don't remember the the editor's name, but he said, yeah, send me your article, Uh, if I like it, we'll publish it, and I'll give you 25 bucks, and I was like, deal. So I wrote my tournament report for winning uh, states, wrote all about my new iteration of fairies, which I loved, and I got paid, I was a published author, baby, let's go, got my $25, Mm -hmm. um, but I I literally spent the next... uh, I don't know, two years writing articles for Star City Games for $25 an article, which was not a lot at the time. And now it's like pennies or whatever. So bad. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, it got my foot in the door and it got me interested in the game in a deeper way. Uh, In 2009, uh, which was the year after I started writing for them, I ended up uh going to nationals that year qualified on rating i like won a ptq went to a pro tour uh and then at nationals i ended up making the top three and i beat brad nelson in the playoff which there he, you go he really dislikes but i love um the other <laughs> two players who it was the top three was charles Gindy, uh adam Yurchik and myself and then brad nelson with number four and uh these were monumental names at the time your chick and i had battled a couple times at grand prix uh gindy had recently won a pro tour with elves like a year or two before and uh brad nelson was he was player of the year that year and so beating him was like a crowning achievement for me at the time and so we end up going to worlds and uh, I go to the World Championships on this team with Charles Gindy and Yurchik, and Brad's our alternate, but he's there uh, to like play the event because he's qualified. And um, <laughs> Yurchik uh, and I, we we come up with like some cool decks the the couple weeks before the event. And my wife actually wins the Star City Open in Nashville, I think, is it was Knoxville or Nashville, with Monogreen. Eldrazi Monument, which was the deck that I was working on, and I played in that same event, and she beat me in the top eight and then won the tournament. <laughs> but then our deck is just it there for the world to see one week before worlds. And I feel I feel a little guilty about it. But also like mm-hmm. I you know, I worked on the deck a lot and I actually uh got the idea from uh former world champion Willie Edel, uh out of uh, South America. And I remember talking to him on Magic Online, and he's just like, I think this deck's pretty good. And I'm like, I think it's pretty good, too, because he had just beat my ass with it. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I do a lot of work on the list, uh, get it nice and tuned. My wife wins the Open uh, the next week. Everyone's ready for it. Uh, there's, like, yeah. Boros decks that are, like, main Earthquake. Like, there's, there's like, you know, Plated, geopede, would Steplinks, Earthquake decks. Like, that's just a deck that exists, and we cannot mm. come close to beating the deck. <laughs> <laughs> but the kicker is Gindy is playing the green deck in the standard portion of worlds. But he has this really weird interaction with a four, a player that doesn't speak English and Gindy just doesn't know how a card works. Uh, I think it was Caller of the Hunt. It like uh makes two twos every turn and you can Oh,
0: I remember this back in the day. You yeah. can
1: tap it to have all of your untapped wolves fight mm-hmm. an opposing creature or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is that Gindi was just like, "Okay, do this thing," and then and then the guy's just like, "I don't think you can do that," and he's just like, "I'm pretty sure I can do that." They call judge. (laughs) The judge is like, "You can't do that," and he's like, "What do you want? What do you want from me, man? I thought I could do it. You know, the card's complicated. If you want to DQ me for cheating, just DQ me for cheating." And the judge is like, "Okay," and just DQs him.
0: But I like... remember that back in the day when with <laughs> yeah. Gindy, yes. When you said Gindy the name, like that that Master of the Hunt thing came up in my yeah. mind. So. Yeah, so yeah. that
1: that's so that's what happened uh, at that Worlds and because he got DQ'd, our Worlds was over and and from the team side of it. The team yeah. thing mattered a lot. For, uh, there was like an actual 3v3 thing that you did, but also your overall record mattered. Uh, so him getting DQ'd meant that we were dead. And we couldn't even have Brad be our alternate because of reasons. They they just gave some BS reason. But yeah. anyway, uh, so after that, Star City was like, oh, uh, I guess you're better than we thought. How about we give you a raise up to $100 per article instead so you don't go right for another website? And I gladly accepted, because it was four times as much as I was making. Yeah, it's all relative right? at the time. Yeah. yeah. And But I, I slowly uh, grew my name playing on the Star City Tour, uh, the SEG sure. Tour, uh, and uh, rode every week for, I don't know, like 13 years, man. And then uh, when it all went kaput, it was really, really sad. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I can't thank them enough for basically giving me a place to, to really stretch my legs and yeah. and you grow. got a shot, right? You got right. a shot
0: through them. And right. yeah, now I'm having to do it on my own, but I don't have a
1: boss. Now you're anymore, now you're writing so. for
0: your Patreon. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my Patreon is where I post all my, uh, guides, uh, talk about new decks and stuff. Uh, mostly pioneer just because it's, I think it's best, I think to focus on one format when you play, uh, you know, when you make content, it's not best for the people who are competing because it's a rotating thing, but, I strive to be a master of the things that I do, and it's like do a
0: few things well kind of deal, right?
1: And uh, I, I pay attention to modern uh, a lot. I basically watch uh, a stream all the time during. You the mentioned day.
0: Spike and Doomwake and yeah, others, right? Th-
1: those are the two that I watch the most, and I just have them, like you said earlier, as the face on the other screen while I'm doing my work, while I'm writing my cyborg guides, while I'm, uh, you know, working on Discord or in group chats or whatever. So. Yeah, uh, I keep I pay attention to the competitive formats, but Pioneer's the one that I I enjoy the most, and so it's the one that I focus on the most.
0: What's it like writing for Patreon? Like, I don't want to ask about comparing mm-hmm. it to SCG yet, but just just writing for Patreon, it's a very hyper specialized audience that is literally paying you for a cyborg guide or something yeah. this weekend, right? So how how does that? influence your method do you like it do you not like it like how, do, how does it work in your mind
1: um so not to get too deep into like trade secrets or whatever but uh there's this huge ebb and flow when it comes to the patreon pages where if you're doing well in an event or you have something important to say or mm-hmm. your
0: demand goes up
1: right yeah. or you're even if just the format that you play primarily is the spotlight format of the rcq season or what have you um, there's just like a natural wave that, that hits. And uh, over the course of the month, um, that wave will slowly like pull back. And every single time that you make a piece of content, the wave goes back forward. And um, But it's just an ebb and flow. And it's been like that for the last you know year and a half or two years that I've been doing it, where whenever it's RCQ season for Pioneer, my number goes up. And whenever it's not RCQ season, the number goes down. Um, but there are anomalies and there are spikes. Uh, whenever, uh, I made the Rona combo deck at the beginning of this year, I had a 25% increase in subscribers in a month, which is Mm -hmm. insane. And, but it's also not sustainable, right? Like those people came there for a specific deck. And so if you stop writing about that deck, they slowly dwindle over time. And at this point, I'm actually back down, uh, to about where I was before the Rona stuff, and so now it's just like, what's the next Rona? And it's scary. It's I'm living on the edge. But you compensate for that with sponsorships and with right. uh, auxiliary methods of uh, revenue. You know, I've been doing a lot of commentary lately. I've been working with uh, Apex Gaming out of Caldwell to uh, help promote their events as well as commentate for them. Uh, I've grown like a, a, a close connection with their uh, two owners, Kyle Huck and Taryn Huck. Uh, they've been, you know, wonderful partners, but also just like treat Ross and I very well whenever we go and and, and work for them. And so it makes it really easy uh, to to want to work for, for someone who does treat you like that. So mm-hmm. um, working for Patreon as opposed to a published, you know, like a public published site is that, honestly it's pretty similar. Um, the majority of time that I worked at Star City, I was behind a paywall and now I'm still behind a paywall. But people are coming there just for me. And so they know what they're going to get. You know, I, I promote my stuff on my social media all the time. Like I say, Hey, this is the deck I'm working on this week. If you're interested in this deck, just come give me $5, man. That's, that's the deal. Like every single day I do a thing. And if you want to give me $5 for that thing, you can have it. And that's the deal. And so I Mm -hmm. joke with my wife all the time that, my entire life, and in and, and a lot of ways, most of society these days, is literally just, hey, you want to give me $5? Yeah,
0: That's it. I mean, that, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just right. transactional. Like, right. I give you value, and you, it's a value exchange, right?
1: Right. And if people don't think that I'm giving them value on, on Patreon, then they speak with their wallet. But, you know, the majority of people, I think, will sign up for something like Patreon not with the intention to stay forever. Some people do. Those are obviously like the backbone of the industry, and those are the people that I care about, and I have known them for years now, and I appreciate right. their support immensely. But then the other 95% of people who subscribe to my Patreon are only there for a short period of time because I'm writing about the thing that they want to know about. And whether it's Pioneer in general, uh, whether it's uh, a specific deck, whatever, a sci- one cyborg guide – you know, and it's funny because I can see every single time someone leaves and I can see every single time yeah. someone comes back. And I learned all this because I kept track of uh, people just by like saying, hey, thanks for signing up. But it keeps the messages. Right. And so. Right. So, you know, if they're repeating. I had somebody one time when they got to the third comeback, I was like, oh, this is just something that most people do. They just leave and come back whenever. Mm-hmm. And so. I stopped sweating when when people would leave, and I started saying, right. "How can I get people to come back?" And so it's literally just every like try to write something every week, uh, try to stay as fresh in terms of the type of content you're creating. But then we get on six month stretches like we did during the summertime, where a new set comes out in April or May, and then you have Lord of the Rings come out for not your format, and then nothing else until August, you know September October. There was a, a huge dead period for me, and uh, it was hard. It's still pretty hard, yeah. but we've compensated.
0: Yeah. Yeah, as, a, as an aside, thank goodness the One Ring is not in Pioneer. That would just be um, absolutely crazy. But, well, uh
1: I wish that uh, they would stop skipping Pioneer for releases. I think them making direct print uh, stuff for older formats has literally been the reason why Standard died. And I think Mm. that Pioneer, you know, it wasn't coming close to dying because people who like Pioneer really like Pioneer, myself included. Um, But the direct-to-print stuff, skipping Pioneer, has been, like, harsh on the psyche. It's like, why do they get this, like, really cool thing that I don't get, you know? Like, when throughout Magic's history, it's been like, oh, every single thing has to pass the, like, standard pipeline test. And yep. uh, the modern art because, stuff insert is just...
0: arbitrary reason that right. wizards concocted for why it should not be. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I love it. I love it when uh, they they like make an announcement about a thing and then uh, have to like roll back on it because of like public yeah. outcry, and it's like very the mental obvious. gymnastics.
0: Sometimes is crazy, yeah.
1: But like people, you know, uh, like for example, someone I was like, they should just ban the ring like right today or whatever. They should just ban it today. And someone was like, they can't ban it. They have, they have to do it on this window that, that they created for themselves. And then I have to respond to them that they make the rules. They created the window. <laughs> they can go back on it whenever they want. They could want. say,
0: yeah, today we changed the window. Yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's all construct. But that's yeah. kind
1: of what they just did also uh, with their, their more recent ban announcement. December 4th was mm-hmm. the like planned announcement. But the, the week prior, you know, they did the, right. the big reveal of like, yeah. hey, we're thinking about
0: bans for these. F- <laughs> Which created a lot of anxiety on the player play- it base. It does, yeah.
1: but it also is like a, a signal flare that times are about to get much better because they are more willing to be hands-on when it comes to format management. And what we see in formats like Pioneer uh, or Commander, they they actually have their own committee uh, that, that decides on bans, unbands, uh, things like that. And I think that the reason why there's nothing like that for um, like Pioneer Modern Standard is because they want to maintain full control over their formats that they use for a competitive play. And Mm -hmm. uh, I wish in the future for them to create a committee of players to meet with them once a month. To discuss these things in order to determine if there is a problem and what needs to be fixed. And I think it would be extremely healthy for them to have outsider's perspective all the time, but also it would give the player base a feeling like they had a voice and they could even like vote on who they want to represent them in the committee, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it just seems like a no-brainer and i i hope it that especially
0: makes it. sense because you said there's things that you can't just you can't just have a robot look at the the data right. and and figure it out right especially on magic online they so more you need some sort of based, vibes based bannings that's what i say because vibes <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah
1: what, the one ring horrible vibes man get it out
0: yeah well i mean i think you're just touching on something like magic players are never going to be satisfied with anything so if you have a panel or people you consult with, there'll also be people coming up and saying like, uh, oh, you know, like what you know, who watches the watchman? Who watches Todd if if, you know, like how, how who's big tobacco on Tandy, you know, I don't know. Like, you know I <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to use an American analogy here. Um there there's pros and cons to all these things. It's just uh you just hope that just smart enough people working within Wizards that yeah. uh that are ex players that they know kind of what they're doing and they have um uh, eye on the pulse or finger on the yeah. pulse I think is the the, right the group analogy. that they have
1: right now is extremely extremely good in terms of uh competitive play previously it's like uh Dan Musser Andrew Brown Carmen Handy uh car, sorry uh Carmen Complaren's, uh Jaden Complarens, um uh, Michael Majors like and they even got people that's a
0: stack team yeah right
1: but they also have people that worked on like Modern Horizons 2 like Mason Clark um, they had uh, aspiring spike work on something one time. Uh, they have mm-hmm. Brad Nelson and uh, Brian Brown uh, Brown Duin working on those types of side projects, you know, pretty often. And so mm-hmm. they are willing to interact with ex players in terms of hires as well as contractors. And so mm-hmm. I just wish that they would go one step further in terms of like uh, asking the you know uh, like an elected group of players like what should we do is this a problem and if it's not great let it lie but there should be a meeting once a month between the players and watsi that's like hey fury's got to go man i'm sorry you you made this awesome card that has been dumping on creature decks for two years but it's time to go
0: it's been a good ride but yeah it's time to fade off into the sunset i think yeah um that's interesting because like you might have the smartest minds in this org of wizards of the coast, right? But you could you could be super smart, but you could still be a little bit out of touch just because you're not as tuned into playing magic regularly and grinding events right. anymore. Like it doesn't matter how smart you are. Like if you're in if you're on the other side of that wall, you just you just can't get the full perspective, right?
1: So the culture at Wizards for 20 years was that players could not play. Or, employees could not play in magic tournaments no matter the stakes they only
0: play on sanction or whatnot yeah right
1: and so uh what ended up happening is that there was an extremely large disconnect between the players and and uh and wizards over the last like five or ten years that culture has you know slowly subsided um but i think that there's still an obvious uh lapse in you know players of high caliber that are current versus players of high caliber who don't participate anymore because they do still have rules in place where wizards folks who are on the play design team or whatever, aren't allowed to play in like the 75 K coming up in Chicago because the stakes are too high. And so because they have like insider information about new sets well before they're released. And so they've, they have like a lot of experience with these cars that are just coming out or whatever. Uh, you can make up a million reasons why they can't be allowed to play or whatever for competitive integrity. And I would largely agree with you, but that just means that it's all the more important for them to consult outside of that circle uh, in terms of bringing in people like Aspiring Spike where they can just be honest with you about uh, not just um, the strength of of specific problems, but also just uh, integrity of gameplay, um, how much fun they're having uh how these new cards that just came out like how are you enjoying them like are they having a significant impact on the format in what you would consider healthy ways uh have you know i i would love to just have a conversation with them about unbanning stuff i i think that they could do like the full on nuclear reset button for modern and just do no banless modern and you would come to a conclusion about probably 10 cards or whatever that just 100% have to stay banned but I think that there's roughly five or six cards on the ban list right now
0: that could That's come a lot off. of safe on bands, I think. Right. right.
1: So the one that pops off, and this is all assuming that they don't ban anything coming up, right? It, let's say mm-hmm. that like Beanstalk, Fury, Grief, the One Ring. These are all cards that stay in the format. I think you could unban, unban Umazawa's Jitte. I'm sorry. I have played with that card a lot. The reason why it was broken is because... A Decay didn't exist yet. And Kolgon's command, Prismari command, these removal spells. There are answers now. Right! Yeah. There are answers that are also good in other situations. And when Jite mm. was a problem, the only way to kill it was to play your own Umazawa's Jite, which yeah, was. Yeah,
0: legendary rule, that OG legendary.
1: Right. But it was funny because the card Naturalize existed, but it was unplayable because, you know. It's too narrow. Too narrow. Uh, but nowadays, that's just not the case anymore. Everyone has you in their deck or whatever. Yeah. You know, I'm trying. I'm out here trying to play Mind Splice Apparatus in my fun, rampy control deck or whatever, and people just have a land that blows up my powerful four mana card. And so, you know what? Jete is fine, man. I'm sorry. It, it just is. And if anyone disagrees with me, then either they haven't been playing as long as me, haven't played with the card as much as I have, or they don't understand that the game is different now. And all of those things lead me to believe that we should just re examine the ban list because
0: there's probably five other cards that can come off just as easily. That's Mm -hmm. it. What's interesting though is that if I look at it from like a company perspective, I always think about this, which is what's the upside to taking any risk? Like if you unban anything, like it might make certain players happy, but for the majority of people, like it probably doesn't do all that much other than the really entrenched people that wish something was unbanned. So it's like, it's a non-zero amount of risk. So it's just like, that. not that why they usually unban something as they ban something? Because it, it feels like a kind of equilibrium effect. Because like, if I'm Wizards, I'm just like, why rock the boat? Like, why even bother, you know?
1: Okay, so um, I think the unbanning of Preordain is a great example um, that counters this argument. Because... Preordain and Ponder were both banned uh, at the same time uh, during the height of... Yeah, be- since
0: the, almost the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: they were banned at the height of Pioneer's uh, Blue-Red Dominance, where uh, Storm and Splinter Twin, and I think there was even like some more other you know kind of off-the-beaten-path combo decks, uh, existed, and they were made more consistent by Ponder and Preordain. Over time, they ended up having to ban many of the cards that you were digging for and finding off of Ponder and Preordain. And so the banning of Ponder and Preordain started to mean less and less. And unbanning it now, we're getting to play with it in Modern again. And it's like pretty clear that it's good. You know, people are playing it in Murktide and people are putting it in decks with Underworld Breach in it, right? But it's not dominating and it's not a problem. And it's because there's just 10 more years of context to add to the equation. Mm-hmm. And they just like haven't done that reassessment in, in quite some time, I think. And, um, I, you know, Ponder is another card that I wish I got to play with again. Green Sunsian is a card I wish I got to play with again. And anytime anyone brings up a, an issue that they have with it, I have a pretty easy counter. And the counter is that those cards are fun. And if if you have to ban something because it's unfun, that's fine. But if you ban something because it's too powerful or because you want to leave another, you want to leave the deck intact while banning the thing that makes it more consistent, but then you end up having to ban the thing anyway, then why would you ever leave those two cards on the table when they're fun to play with? I'm sorry. Mm. Um, You're right, though. Risk is a huge deal. Having to reban something that you unban is a huge PR nightmare. Um, But at the end of the day, you have to just ask yourself, what is your banned philosophy? And if your banned philosophy is uh, nothing should be banned unless it's problematic, then you have to like fine-tooth comb every single card. And if your banned philosophy is anything that's on the ban list stays because uh, we don't want to rock the boat or we don't want to have it be a problem again, I I just think that... uh, I don't want to say it's cowardly, but it's certainly disheartening because... Mm-hmm. Magic is just full of awesome, powerful synergies and, and powerful cards that, you know, uh, get banned from time to time. But, you know, every now and then we get to open something back up that adds a lot of depth to some decks and opens up the format quite a bit. You know, just look at um, when they they banned Bloodbraid Elf for a while and they banned it because the Jun deck was too strong. And the reason why the Jun deck was too strong was because of Deathrite Shaman. And they banned Bloodbraid Elf um, instead of the Deathrite Shaman because they did not want to kill Jund. They wanted to weaken it. And so mm-hmm. a month or two later, they end up banning the Deathrite Shaman again. And then a couple years later, they unban Bloodbraid Elf. But they do it at the same time that they unban Jace the Mind Sculptor because historically... Jace was fought very hard by Bloodbread Elf because it was a double cast. It had mm-hmm. haste, right? It was a natural counter. And so if you release two things at the same time that are like kind of natural counters to themselves, oftentimes they don't end up being a problem. And um, the way they approached Modern at the very beginning was a, a, a very heavy hand. And they banned some cards that were problematic in, in previous standard formats that didn't really have any litmus test to see whether or not they were too good for because everything's
0: contextual right Right. so they 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 played they were on the safe side i get that yeah
1: yeah but they did that with valakut bitter blossom jace the mind sculptor stoneforge mystic a lot of other things and over the last five years you know or maybe longer nine years or so they've been slowly unbanning things and it's these cards
0: are more than fine now right i mean you've got you've got the one ring why worry about jace the mind sculptor exactly
1: exactly so uh, again, um, you know, when they make a new thing that's too powerful, um, they have the option to unban stuff that might counteract it in some regard. Um but right. for the most part I think uh they should just re examine the whole ban list and I just want someone in charge who has the cojones to actually do something like that. Even if it's just Run a no ban list league on Magic Online for six months and get enough data from people playing in those yep. types of things to to like reestablish or what consult the with should players be. as you say, right, right. right? You know, yeah. I, players aren't always going to be the most honest, truthful. They're going to have a lot of personal bias in the yeah. Things but that it's they like enjoy. any survey.
0: If you consult enough people, the honesty just naturally comes out right at some point.
1: Yeah, or you're yeah. able to extrapolate a reasonable amount of information, and you just have to have somebody who's like able to parse the data right and if in like uh in in terms of the the modern ban list you know it's it is what it is i just wish they uh were a little more lenient i guess
0: yeah i think what players want is really just consistency players want to feel like there's a governing body it's kind of like sports that there's like some sort of purity or some sort of consistency in, in the way things are Manage things are ruled, right? That's that's all we want, really. Yeah. It's, it's just be consistent. Like, if you make one decision here to ban something, it should be the same rationale as another decision to ban something or to unban something. There needs to be, as you said, a philosophy, right? That's what it is,
1: yeah. And for a or long time, you know, policy people mentioned that like turn four kill. Uh, that was like the if anything kills before turn three in modern, it's like a potential problem. That was like something that they. Had in a, a pseudo mission statement in like 2013 or 2012 or something, and people have basically uh, recalled back upon that uh, on social media whenever people are discussing banned philosophy. And at some point, it was that was no longer the case. Turn four kills were not necessarily uh, okay. Uh, turn three kills were not necessarily off the table. Turn two kills aren't even necessarily off the table. It's more so about vibes. It is. It's just like, do people hate this card in combo? If yes, some
0: sort of deletes. intangible fun factor kind of thing, right?
1: Yeah, and look, fun's different for everyone. But when it, in terms of uh, competitive viability, uh, you often will see decks that uh, can kill your opponent in one extreme way, and then occasionally win in two or three other ways. And whenever they win the game in their extreme way. It is often uh, well before normal games would end, like it's usually a turn or two earlier than it really should end, or the combo functions in such a way that it is insulated from interaction or insulated from roughly 70% of the interaction available in the format. And when that ends up being the case, it often, you know, people say, oh, I didn't have fun, or like, this is an unfun interaction. That's what they mean. It's just... It feels like it's happening too quickly, and it feels like it's too hard to do anything about it. That doesn't mean it's impossible. That doesn't mean that the win rate's too high. It's just vibes,
0: right? Or, or there's a way to break down vibes and fun in a kind of uh, framework for why that is problematic yeah. or not, not fun or not vibesy. Is that even <laughs> a word? Um, <laughs> um, I want to. I want to actually talk about a bit about casting because as you just mentioned you've been doing um apex gaming you've been doing uh yeah there you go um you've been doing that is that the only uh is that the only gig you have right now i mean i guess streaming is a kind of casting but it's not really i mean it's talking about your own place but uh is apex the the main one for you and ross uh
1: so it's the main one for me and ross uh we we've been going there basically once every two months for about two years now and uh i have you know, really enjoyed working with them. They have an uh, A-class setup in terms of, uh, like, a studio, uh, recording space, you know, the tech to go with it. And they put on a good broadcast because Taren Huck is just great at managing stream stuff. Uh, mm. He even recently got a job. Uh, he's, like, head of the AV department at a local school now because that's just, like, stuff he likes doing and he's good at it. Um mm. I'm actually uh have recently been tapped to be on coverage of the regional championship in the United States in uh, Atlanta coming up. I'll be casting from home in this very room, but uh I'll be doing that um, alongside some some really great casters, uh, Anurag Das, uh Anzit MTG. He's uh the person He's who... the
0: mastermind behind it, yeah.
1: Uh but he tapped me uh to do it. I reached out to him a while back and was like, "Hey, this tournament's coming up. Uh i w- I'm highly motivated and this is the format that i know the most so uh i i did actually work with them earlier in the year i did a standard event uh back in like uh, march or april one of the regional championships in uh, san diego was standard and I, I was on commentary for that as well uh, so i i enjoy working with them uh that that group's great jeff foster uh, works behind the scenes a lot uh they have another teammate who's uh uh, goes by the Biscuit Jesus, <laughs>
0: but uh, oh yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, Biscuit Jesus, I know him. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, uh, yeah, that team is awesome. I, I really enjoy working with them too, and I'm looking forward to to doing uh, RC Atlantic coverage. Uh, I'm, my teammate this time is Marcus Luong. He's a, a newcomer. Um, we actually haven't even. Oh, f- I know
0: Marcus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's uh, he's been a grinder for a while. Yeah, yeah. but
1: we haven't figured out our our uh, our roles yet in terms of like who's A, who's B. Uh, when oh, who's when,
0: color and who's play by play?
1: Right. And yeah. when I'm with Ross at Apex, uh, I'm play-by-play. But when I do most other things, I'm color. Because you pick somebody to do color who knows all about the thing that you're doing. And in Pioneer specifically, I think I'd be great at color because I get to explain the whys behind everything. But I've just been, you know, the play-by-play at Apex for the last two years. So it's like, it's hard to jump so back it, and it forth. It is like though. you
0: have to rework that muscle. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You have to let yeah. someone
1: else lead. It's like dancing.
0: Of, of course yeah uh, you've been you've been doing uh, commentary since the scG days right
1: yeah uh, I've, I was on and off commentator uh, handful of times between like 2013 2016 2017 basically if um, if I was like not in day two of the two-day event or uh, someone got sick or whatever they would ask me to like fill in if someone couldn't or if there were travel problems occasionally they'd ask me to step in for I think I stepped in for Jerry Thompson one time. I stepped in for Cedric a couple times um, over the years. You know, accidents happen. People get their flights canceled. They get all their bags lost or whatever. And so, like, they just like can't. And I was always very happy to step in to the booth because ultimately that's what I wanted to do. Um, I tried. You to... wanted
0: to do that more than being a player, perhaps, or
1: at some point the grind starts to kill you, man. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, you travel every other weekend for, you know, 10 straight years, eight straight years or whatever, playing tournaments. Uh, every time you lose, it makes you feel like shit. Every time you win, it feels good, but like, you know, it doesn't feel that good. It just feels good.
0: Uh, it's, it's Or it's a fleeting moment, right?
1: Right. And you, you kind of like use those wins to springboard you into another field or to try to leverage it for like long-term revenue generation and when I'm already like moving into being a streamer and and trying to like make YouTube videos and content like that then it's like pretty obvious that the next step is to stop physically playing in the events and instead do things that surround the event to promote it or to cast it and because of my uh, extensive knowledge of the game in general. I felt like casting was like a natural fit and I, I liked doing it. I liked doing it on all, all the times that I got to like step in. And so uh, around, uh, I think it was either 2017 or 2018. I asked Cedric if I could move to a more full-time commentary position. And he was in charge of the stable at the time for star city games. And um, he paired me up with uh, uh, Ryan Overturf uh, pretty early on. And uh, Helm and I were casting partners for like two years and I, I loved it. And you know, it felt uh, bad when I would miss the invitationals, uh, but it felt great basically any other time I was casting because I was like guaranteed top four in terms of like the <laughs> prizing or whatever. It was just like a top four split was always about the same as what I would get for doing commentary. And I the top four right. split was like very common when you would top four. And so sure. – Uh, yeah, of course I'll take a guaranteed top four split. And instead of the stress of having to win and the disappointment of, of losing, I just get to, you know, basically stretch my, my legs and relax and just talk about magic for two days straight. Yeah. It's stressful as shit, but you know, it's nothing compared to, uh, just the, the pain of, you know, having a bad month when, you know, a lot of your yeah
0: having a down month
1: yeah and that happened all the time and and now though it's like okay i never have a down month except when content is like on a a slump or whatever but a lot of that is is up to me but not all of it and so i Mm -hmm. i try to always control the things that i can control and i try not to sweat too badly the things that i can't control
0: how do you think you've leveled up or evolved as a commentator if you compare yourself to those early days when you were a walk-on versus now doing apex events
1: uh, as a walk-on, I um, asserted dominance over the players that were in the feature match area. And now I defend them uh, with all of my heart. Uh, you know, someone will make a misplay, and you'll just see Twitch chat go, uh, you know, minus uh, three points Kekw, W or whatever. Like, they just, like, go crazy about someone who, like, missed an attack or miss sequenced their land or whatever. And I just... I like to I come back to the booth. Let's have a chat. It's like leave them alone. Okay? If you if I watched you play any match of magic, I could probably find two game rules violations, uh, three missed triggers, and maybe you accidentally cheated one time or whatever, right? Like
0: just it's a hard game. Right. It's no. an
1: extremely difficult game. And even some of the best players that we have playing at Apex, right, they'll have like a minor mistake on camera that we have to like pause them for. And we are aggressive about pausing the matches to maintain the integrity of the game state Uh, because once they reach a a certain point it's usually like one full turn cycle if one full turn cycle goes by they really can't fix whatever happened and it's an extremely dissatisfying experience as a viewer to see something that you clearly know and that the commentators clearly know is a mistake and then the judge comes over and they say well it's too late to fix because four decisions have been made since then and so uh, we're just like creating a culture that's just like very aggressive about fixing things, making sure that the people at home understand that accidents do not mean that they are cheating. Cheating specifically implies like intent to do something wrong on purpose. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I just try to be very clear when I talk to the people at home, uh, you know, like this is what's happening. This is what's probably going to be the fix, but we're going to let the judge figure it out. And when I was younger, I was mean. And I I have grown. Because
0: you were in the position of a player yourself, right? Right.
1: And I, you know, I I have high expectations of myself. And so I have high expectations of my fellow competitors. And when I was in the booth early on, I was aggressive and relentless about those types of mistakes. And um, someone who I actually liked uh, ended up blocking me on social media because of something that I I said on coverage about them. Because they got a game loss for marked cards with uh, double-faced sleeves. And when it happened, I just started laughing. I was like, this is the third time we've had double face cards. You should know better. This is your fault. Right. But like I did it in like kind of a mean way. And that's just like not something I would do anymore. I would, I empathize because there's like too many cards, too many rules, too many formats. Cards are too expensive. Give them a break. And so that's what I try to do, just take everything... And they're playing on camera. There's
0: some pressure to that as well. Right. Yeah.
1: And they're playing on camera in an era where camera matches are not regular. Even the bigger uh, events from, you know, Star City Games has their uh, SCG cons every month or two, and, mm-hmm. and, like, they don't broadcast them anymore. The people who broadcast them are doing it on their own dime, and they're picking their own little feature matches and stuff. And, uh, and so, like, there's not uh, this culture of, like, try to catch a cheater anymore like that just doesn't exist and it's actually so lax that ross and i have conversations regularly where we're just like we have to explain to them that if they're not careful there's going to be a wolf in their midst soon and that wolf is going to take everything from them because they did that to us and we were even then we were (sighs) vigilant about it we would cut each other's decks we would present in such a way where it was like very obvious that we weren't trying to manipulate not trying to cheat we would turn our head while we were shuffling cards to, yeah, to yeah. ensure that there Go was... out of
0: your way to... Uh, yeah. Right. And that culture
1: yeah. doesn't exist anymore. And it's partly because... All it's... it
0: takes is one wolf or a bad actor.
1: Right. and uh, But we're just getting to the point where tournaments are coming back that are like worth enough, where people uh, will be willing to cheat because the prizes are big enough. And from playing a bunch of video games in my life and playing online uh, through the majority of it... Uh, I'll say that people will cheat for $0, and so when you put a $100,000 cash prize up, people will cheat in order to attain it, because they know that they're not good enough to get there without it. And what ends up happening a lot of times is players who are very good at the game naturally will cheat to accrue an extra 10% equity. And this was actually a very common thing to happen uh, during, like, the 2010s, where we had people getting banned who were, like, winning, uh, I think Fabrizio and Terry won, like, five Grand Prix in a row or something, and at that point it's like, okay, man, like, you know, one one or two Grand Prix in a row, you know, sure, three, come on, but five, Mm -hmm. something's a little fishy. And then, of course, you know, he Mm -hmm. was just doing a million little things to gain micro edges and whatever, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, But I digress. Uh, Mostly just the culture at this point um, is very favorable for cheaters. And I need a governing body to enforce bans. And they don't have anything of that nature anymore in Magic the Gathering. And it's terrifying.
0: Player bans. Right. Right. Penalties.
1: Right. And so, like, someone can get disqualified from a tournament, but they can just go to another store the next day and play a tournament. Mm -hmm. There's no punishment.
0: Or if someone gets banned from Apex, they just go to NRG or some other place in right. the states or whatnot.
1: Right, but there's yeah. no there's no central organized body anymore. The DCI is gone. Uh, the Judge Program is not affiliated with Wizards of the Coast in any capacity anymore. And uh, I'm just hoping that at some point the dam breaks and they realize that they need to create infrastructure to protect their players uh, and the and the integrity of their of their events. And uh, but that's something mm-hmm. that I've been uh, you know I've talked about a lot with uh, the organizers I've worked with, including folks at Apex Gaming, to, to try to cultivate the culture of, uh, you know, always be uh, cutting your opponent's decks or shuffling your opponent's decks while they're codified into the rules. People don't care, man. They just tap the deck and move on with their life. And, yep. and like, I get it because it's annoying in modern specifically to cut your opponent's deck or shuffle your opponent's deck five times a game when they're
0: playing. Gotta stay vigilant, man. The shuffle cheats are the easiest to pull off. Exactly. Easiest. exactly. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, so just that's the type of thing. Um, whenever I'm doing commentary nowadays, I'm just extremely lenient on uh, mistakes but we need to be hyper vigilant about the mechanical cheats that uh, mm-hmm. that we know and the, the cheats of opportunity. And um and I just uh hope that at some point we just get another governing body in place to enforce those rules uh to a degree that multiple stores across the country mm-hmm. or the world uh can like share that that type of a, a ban list or whatever. It's just it not existing as mm-hmm. a travesty.
0: So I know you mentioned like being having a stronger sense of empathy as a as a caster or commentator, but are also there other things a like just <laughs> as as a person, yeah. sure that leads into mm-hmm. what you're doing. But are there other things like you know how you how you communicate on camera, or like how you um, interact with your co-host, or how you uh, even prepare for events, or s- other things like? Are there other parts of it that you've also leveled up in? Um. So
1: my. Preparation for events is roughly the same. Just play tons of games, watch tons of games, talk to people who are... Know the format. Right. Okay. T- talk to people who are smarter than you and learn from them. Um, as far as in the booth working with Ross, uh, since I'm usually uh, primary, uh, I just call the plays and then I softball him all the time so he can like set it up and knock it down. Um, I was never on that side when we were doing on SEG, and so uh, developing that skill has has taken some time, but I think I finally caught my stride. Um, in terms of uh, what I do differently, it's not a lot from when I was playing all the time because I still just play all the time. It's just I uh, I don't play in you know the big tournaments or whatever. I just play at home.
0: Mm-hmm. But it seems like having knowledge of the format is absolutely critical right for your role because like you can definitely tell when commentators don't know a format versus uh knowing a format it it really shows i think
1: it even shows whenever um like a new card comes out and there's like a two card interaction that if you if you played the deck before like you would know that that was a thing and it comes up every now and then um even for me like when i'll be talking about modern there's like a, oh someone played uh tishana's tidebinder at the invitational recently and this is like a brand new card that i had not seen anyone cast yet uh, but it just like turns on flame of an and now every single rhino's deck is just playing uh Tide tidebinder and flame of an but, like, that happened the Friday before the Invitational on Magic Online when the set had been out less than a week. And so, like,
0: in order for me you to... can't know all the interactions. It's challenging. But I did, yeah.
1: right? Because I paid attention to the results on Twitter the night before. And I saw the deck that won. And I saw okay, that... you're on and the I... pulse. Right. And so that's what I am now. I'm just always sitting on the cutting right. edge... Because that's when you deliver
0: value for the Twitch viewers because then they you you explain it to them, that's what it is because they don't know. Yeah,
1: sometimes I'll know an interaction and I'll just ask Ross about it because he's able to explain it. uh, Softball, right? Right, yeah, right, right. And but that's also the type of thing where like I can cover my own tracks where if there is a thing that I don't know, I can do the same. One of you has
0: to be able to answer, you can't have a question that none of you can answer, that would be bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have those too often.
1: Every now and then, uh, on coverage though. You know, not to, to sidetrack or whatever, but they there's, like, cards that come up that are, like, arts that we've never seen before. And we just don't know what a card is so we're just like i think that's a polluted delta but oh actually no sorry it's a dark it's a <laughs> yeah. dark Slick shores they tapped it for mana oh actually it is a polluted delta there's an airborne right, right, right. play that's the problem with
0: the game itself and all the different arts yeah. that's it's it's like it's crazy actually it I, I don't any nobody can can really figure that stuff out There, like, when there you have are that people, new...
1: i have discovered that there are people whose their entire job is to know what those things are and if and if they were casters, they would have more extensive knowledge or whatever. But in order for me to have the capacity to talk about the game at a high level, I cannot just know every art on every card. I can right. I can barely right. know every card, and I don't know every card. It's it's almost impossible.
0: Mm-hmm. It's hard enough knowing what the cards do, let yeah. alone all the different printings of the cards, I get you. Yeah. Um something you said, which I mean, which is that <sighs> It's kind of the flip side of honesty, because I feel like that's something that's always been very uh, much a part of you and what you do, which which I admire, which is like you're just you're just pretty honest all the time. Like, I just don't think there's really a a filter. Like, I've seen you stream where you're like singing and I've seen you like do different things at various points over the years. And you just kind of like tell it as it is. Sometimes it it runs off on people the wrong way. I don't want to call you abrasive exactly but you have had someone block you because you're just kind of saying like why'd you do that but I mean has that have you felt like obviously that's you Todd Anderson is Todd Anderson but like ha, have, have you has this ever conflicted with like opportunities or like things that may have happened for you or not happened to you because of who you are
1: absolutely <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I have lost business opportunities because of the things I have said in defense of what I consider to be the greater good. And most explicitly, I think my relationship with Wizards of the Coast has basically been non-existent
0: or... Uh, so-, so you kind of burned some bridges there? That's what you're saying?
1: Look, I maybe burned bridges with people 10 years ago, but now all the people at work there are like old friends of mine or whatever. So it's like the, the new guard knows who I am and knows what I'm about. Um, but they also understand that like I'm not necessarily the type of person that they need to ask for like my opinion on everything because my opinion is not necessarily right, but I am certainly going to be vocal about it. and um, but that's the thing too is that i'm I'm also willing to listen and learn and like change my opinion if if I think someone makes a a really good argument. And I actually had like a, a really weird, interaction with somebody about a magic card like six months ago and i was like i think this card's probably uh too good to unban and then they were they like listed off a few things and i was like oh you know actually that's a good point and then someone responded with oh so your original post is just uh wrong now and i'm like yeah, that's what happens when two humans Oh my god,
0: someone admitted they're wrong on the internet.
1: Right. It's like <laughs> the culture doesn't exist anymore where two people have a conversation and one person is swayed. What ends up happening is right. that two people of opposing ideologies butt heads, and everyone watching is either already in a camp or they're in the middle and and They're the, already on
0: that team. And the people yeah. that
1: are in the middle will gravitate towards everyone one uh, is saying the things that they agree with more. And but that's every argument for every issue that exists on the planet. And Uh, Mm -hmm. The way that social media is constructed. Now, in terms of uh, brutal honesty, that is my brand. I am unequivocally uh, unapologetic. I am honest about what I think uh, to the best of my ability in such a way where I try not to make people upset, but I'll say what I think about a thing because I I feel like too many interactions between humans are... Muddied by niceties and for lack of a better, you know, people just don't really say what they mean because they're afraid of the consequences of what they say in terms of, uh, financial, uh, social consequences. And, uh, growing up, I was always like that. I would, I would talk back to my teachers when I thought that they were wrong. And I was often right on some of the stuff, not even like subjective stuff, but like objectively, true things from mm. the material we were reading Facts
0: kind of thing right sure
1: and so that's just kind of who i was, who, who i've always been um i was extremely emotional all, all the time as a as a younger person too where um even in my writing you know i would often write stories about my experiences and i would say these things about certain people that rubbed me the wrong way and then that that bridge was burned right but Those people oftentimes would just end up being people we excommunicated from the the group anyway because of the horrible things that they said, right? I say things that might piss you off, but those people are doing things that, like, ruin people's lives. And, like, you know, people tell me to shut up or they tell me, like, hey, don't talk bad about this person or whatever. I'm just like, I saw them do something that was bad, and we should be done with them, Right and mm-hmm. and so you know over time these people slowly got taken out or whatever but i don't know uh long story short i apologize for nothing but i have definitely burned some bridges and uh whether it's people from wizards of the coast or other organizations you know i don't want to get too much into it but we'll just say that i i i tell it like it is
0: yeah uh, i think there's also a side of it which is that as as you become more and more known as a magic player or a magic personality there's just always going to be people that are out to get you i'm kind of learning that i i i'm ai I'm am I'm a much smaller scale than you are cuz i don't do magic strategy and things like that but i have i have felt that sometimes it's just like you're going to have people that will come after you they just don't like your face they just don't like your voice or whatever yeah. right There's, you just you just rub them the wrong way and it's like it's okay Not everybody not everything is for everybody i mean it's kind of like you just kind of have to i guess the question here is you do you just are did you develop like thicker skin over time or did you or is that just always the way it's been like this is nothing compared to like you know when you were being coached by your dad or like when you were um a magic grinder or something like that
1: All right, so uh, some of the people who are listening to this will likely remember a time where they themselves did not like me. And over time, I think I wear people down just through just... They see over time that I have enough correct takes and I'm on the right side Uh. of more issues and I am on the right side of the issue early and aggressively and then at some point, someone's like, and consistent
0: in that, by the way, right. And yeah.
1: when I'm on the wrong side, I get swayed very quickly by by my peers. When when I listen to them, when they tell me why the thing is why it is, I get pulled in the right direction, and I'm and I'm open to it. And I think that 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 in general will just make people uh, not really interested in you as a person, and they're more so interested in in like what you represent. And when someone is combative in such a way, uh, always, uh, for what they think is the greater good, you're just going to have a lot of instances where you butt heads with somebody on an issue. And for some people, those issues are hard line and for others, you know, it's a lot more nebulous, but at the same time, like if you hear enough people say, oh, Todd Anderson is kind of a jerk, you know, he said this one thing, but then six months later, it's like, oh, well, he was just right. You know, you start to see that over time. It's like, okay, maybe there's something to this dude.
0: Um, yeah, there's a body of work, right, that proves itself over time.
1: The, uh, one of the very first things I ever wrote for Star City Games was uh, an article on Legacy. And I had not really played that much Legacy uh, leading up to writing that article. It was like, a here is my first foray into this iteration of Legacy, my first foray into Legacy in the last five years... Uh, here are my thoughts. Uh, this was in like 2009. There was an SCG in Atlanta, and um, Show and Tell was very popular in the Reanimator decks. Uh, it was like Reanimator, a bunch of blue combo, and Mystical Tutor, the one blue tutor that got that went and got a Incident or sorcerer or whatever, was like everywhere, and it was banned shortly after, but. At that event, I just borrowed a deck to play. It was my friend's goblin deck. And I got smushed by combo over and over again because my deck just didn't have the tools to interact with combo. And in my my article that I wrote, I said, you know, Legacy is, is a place where you must play Force of Will or you'll lose. And I received so much just venom from one website in particular it was called uh, mtgthesource.com and they made threads about me and my family for years just shitting on me because of this like one legacy article i wrote when i was you know 20 years old or 22 years old or whatever and yeah. um, and also like from the perspective of someone who doesn't play legacy a lot fast forward 2 years And then like the majority of these trophies are legacy and the majority of decks that I won with have force of will in them. So scoreboard you chuds, eat shit.
0: (laughs) I, people get very uh, attached to, uh, and I'll, I'll speak as someone who was on MTG the source because I used to be really into legacy and I know that, for a very long time it was very unhealthy. It defined my identity as a magic player, which is really sad to say in retrospect, but like people have these ideals about a format and they, they feel like they're a format specialist, um, which by the way, is really not a, a thing. A you, format you should specialist. not be proud of that. So... You should go play some limited and actually learn how combat math works anyways. Uh, um, uh, but yeah, it's like people get very defensive uh, about the sanctity of a format and they will push out people that threaten their core beliefs about a format, like so you could actually be right in that statement, but that's not going to matter. I think they did the same to um a Mr. Hoogland when he wrote some sort of article on legacy back in the day like m t g the source just just um I would say actually pretty unfairly just like attacked what he had to say, but he was a winning player, like despite how I feel about you or Jeff or somebody. Personality wise, like you have to divorce the ideas of a player from who they are and their brand. And if you have good opinions, you have good opinions, James. It's, it's way just, more
1: fun to dogpile, it's just a lot of fun to it's just, just so much more fun to ruin someone's day I've been day. dogpiled this year, you know? so I've
0: just turned around. <laughs> like, I used to be the dogpiler, now I'm the dogpiled, and now I'm yeah. just like, look, uh, but after I, you
1: get dogpiled once, you realize. Hey, maybe this isn't so good or nice. Yeah, like, maybe
0: <laughs> there's an actual human that you're attacking, yeah. and it's not all fun and games and keyboard stuff. So, yeah, um, you know that better than I do to a uh, to a much greater extent. <laughs> so I'm Christian to the Choir here, but uh, look, yeah, it, look,
1: yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I have been uh, particularly aggressed upon by the community. I think that they're. Are a handful of people over the years who would say something really mean or negative about me or my family. And I would just challenge them openly, publicly, even privately. Like, hey, you don't know me. Like, whatever you think you know about me is wrong. And I can prove yeah. it to you however you like. And a lot of times I would just like, why don't we go grab a beer, dude? Or why don't you ask this person who's a mutual friend of ours what they think about me? And the, the moment that they do their tune changes because all they see of me is me at my most explosive or energetic or aggressive or angry. Right. Or me at the height of my career, like winning tournaments and just like being the cockiest SOB on the planet. Right. Like how can you contain someone who doesn't lose? And how can you preach to somebody that they're wrong about a certain thing when they continuously prove that they're right over and over again? And and yeah. so you, you end up getting like a, a lot of younger kids these days uh, who are, are winning a bunch and no one no one beats them. And because of that, they just act like assholes. And yeah, and uh, but no one can tell them differently because they don't lose. They
0: haven't tasted defeat
1: yet. Right. So and, they need to be they haven't had that humble pie yet. Right. So and it will come. But hopefully it'll come. But we'll see. Uh, but I, I do want to specifically call out one person as being uh, the antithesis of this, and uh, that is a former world champion Nathan Stoyer, who recently had his 21st birthday party at the uh, Apex uh, house, and we had like a really good time. And I got to talk to him a bunch over the last couple months when he, he joined our uh, Lorcan Invitational. And um, he is a, a younger player who doesn't lose very much, who is extremely humble. Uh, he's definitely just a student of the game who just wants to get better. And he just surrounds himself with like minded people who also just like are respectful and intelligent and are just they're just like healthy ambassadors for the game. And he's
0: a he's a chill dude, man. I had him on Humans of Magic. I interviewed awesome. him for like over an hour and it's just like he's just so much more mature than anyone in his age group that I've ever encountered, like magic or otherwise. Yeah, it's just he's got more, a solid head. Far on the more shoulders. than me
1: when I was his age, for sure. <laughs>
0: Far more than anybody myself included like i could barely talk at that age i've let alone like win magic tournaments it's just uh or win the highest tier magic tournaments in the world like he is probably one of the best magic players right now like just, Easily. there's yeah. almost no debate it may be the best right now so just huge amazing run the last year two years um i want to talk a little bit about legacy not the legacy format but your legacy because uh, I think that you are actually quite underappreciated as one of the deck building greats in the game. Aww. I would say that you have done a lot of seminal work in the. Uh, I think it was whether it was with Mono Blue Illusions in 2011, 2012, or otherwise. Like and even now with Pioneer and different things, right? I feel like you may not get enough credit as one of the greats so i think you could be in the top 10 or the top 15 of that list um how do you feel about that i mean it's kind of weird to have someone just ask you like, <laughs> okay like how do you feel about being one of the greats like but you know like how like is that something that you set out to do is that just uh, naturally comes about as being out of being a player just being a student of the game like how do you think about maybe your legacy from that standpoint
1: uh it's extremely difficult to answer this question without sounding like I'm just completely full of myself. So, it's okay,
0: I'll give you license to do because okay. I asked the question. Let's uh, so, yeah. let's
1: assume that I am humble, and then I will I'll say some stuff. Um, I won my first PTQ in 2006. I uh, took a deck that uh, top four the Pro Tour, and I tweaked it by eight cards, and the eight changes I made are directly responsible for my win in the PTQ. And at that point, I realized that whatever people thought was common knowledge is not necessarily correct for uh, your local metagame. And ever since then, I've always looked for an edge in whatever competitive format that I'm working on. And I work on that format for as long as there are tournaments in that format. And then the seasons would change and I would move on to the next one, whether it's standard, modern, pioneer, whatever. Um, fast forward to you know, 2009, 2009, the green deck with Eldrazi Monument, just like shit on a tournament, defined the world's metagame. Everyone who played that deck, uh, you know, thought it was awesome. And But at the event, it was heavily metagamed against and it got shit on. And so it was kind of lost to time and because the format changed like a week later after Worlds or whatever. Um, then when I moved to Roanoke in, in 2011, I uh, started working with Brad Nelson, Jerry Thompson, Tom the Boss Ross, other people, and their accolades were always greater than my own, and so I existed in their shadows. But many of the things that we were successful with deck-wise were a collaboration between us. And most of the time when they did well with my work, I didn't take credit for it. Why would I steal my friend's thunder? But like Brad Nelson, uh, myself, and Brian Brown doing all top eight at a Grand Prix Louisville with Mono Black Devotion. That deck was uh, in the top eight of the Pro Tour the previous week, but it lost in top eight, and people thought it was bad. And I figured out that, like, Pack Rat was actually really good. Uh, I didn't want to overload on him, so we only played two. Uh, Me and BBD and Brad, um, you know, they were actually traveling back from the Pro Tour while I was doing the bulk of the playtesting for the Grand Prix because I wasn't at the Pro Tour the week before, but they were. And when they got home, I just had a deck for them. And we all three top-aided and Brian won. And now Brian is, like, known for that deck. And that was my deck. And then, uh, you know, all throughout the next few years, like, I worked on uh, Blue-Eyed Delver with uh, basically nobody. Uh, I You know, I started just playing with Mono Blue Illusions. Uh, I, like, top forward on the opening weekend of... Uh, scg indianapolis in like uh 20 i think 2011 or 2012 i forgot which year exactly but then i just wrote the delver compendium volumes one through five as my articles for the next month about this deck and then ultimately charles Gindy uh played a version that won an open um and then he got all the credit for it or whatever uh and then i built monogreen dungrove elder if you recall that deck and um i ended up top eighting an open with it did well whatever right but as we continue this trend of playing on the scg tour every week like i had a lot of successes obviously but my friends also had a lot of success too and and often it was with my ideas and my decks and instead of like taking that credit from them i let us all bask in our glories together because we're a group but over time I just only played the scg tour and they all played the pro tour and they played worlds and so like their names were bigger than mine and you look like such a huge piece of shit if you interject on someone else's win with hey that's my deck right you just look like the cockiest worst friend imaginable and so i I never did i tried not to the one thing that i wish i got credit for uh there was a a block-constructed Pro Tour. Do you remember uh, Godenis Vidigoras? Do you remember that person? Is that a name you remember? So Go, uh, everyone called him Go, uh, but Godenis uh, top two'd a Pro Tour with a deck that I built. And uh, I got no credit, and Sam Black got all the credit for it because Jerry Thompson had gifted them a playtest deck of ours that he liked as like a, a friend showing, and then Go played the deck and made it to the finals, and I got nothing. And Sam got the credit for that. Sam got the credit for a lot of decks, you know, and he built most of them. But that one was one that I built, and I didn't get any credit for, and I was kind of upset about it. But that, that type of thing just happened a lot because if I say anything, the public perception is that I'm, like, jealous or, you know, just only out for myself or, or whatever. And so holding back forever... Uh, you just stop caring so much about what you represent in the long term, and you more so care about what you represent in the now. And in the now, I had to maintain the integrity of my own brand, and I had to you know, ensure my own uh, prosperity in the industry by keeping connections that were close to me, never rocking the boat, never making a stink about anything, and just like always trying to just be the best. And that's what I did. But, you know, moving on to like later in the 2010s or whatever, people would move to Roanoke like Tom Ross, and he got all the uh, credit for Infect, which rightfully so. But there was a a six-month stretch where I had as much or more success with Infect than him, and the majority of the changes were collaborative. and Oftentimes, my changes were better than, and he would play a slightly different list because he would change two cards the night before for no reason. He would just say, I just like this card instead. And then, like, you know, he doesn't do well in that event, but then he wins the next one or whatever. And, um, you know, little things like that happened all the time. Um, You know, BBD played a lot with, uh, like, Stoneforge Mystic in uh, the early days of our PTQ grinding or whatever. And he won, uh, like, one of his PTQs beating me like in the finals uh, of a PTQ in Roanoke. And then that season he won worlds. But if I won that match where I don't mulligan to five in the finals, right, maybe I don't get the worlds, but I definitely get on an extra pro tour and I never played four pro tours in a row in my entire career. It was always like one point short here, two points short there. You don't quite hit the gold or they changed silver or gold by one point. And so now you miss this year, whereas you would have hit last year the rewards always got scaled back, always were being scaled more and more back, and they, and they always made the thresholds harder and harder to attain. Whereas the people who would hit those thresholds, they would be gifted with a full cycle extra to try to maintain being on the train. And it was not very hard to maintain being on the train when you get four tries. But when you only have one try, breaking through is extremely difficult. And maintaining that, that lifestyle is also extremely difficult and expensive because you're just jet-setting around the, the freaking world. And I'm poor, man. I grew up poor. I still don't have, like, tons of money or whatever. Like, my wife has a stable job. I have a quasi-stable job. But things are scary sometimes. Like, $2,000 water heater a couple months ago. Like, that's scary. That sucks, right? Uh, little things like that. And so I, I don't care so much about my legacy in the game because I know what I did. And if anyone ever wants to ask me about it, I'll give them the full story. And you want to ask me about it, I'm giving you as much of the story as I think, you know, really pertains to the situation. And um, I I would love to be known uh, in history as like someone who, you know, came up with the goggles deck. But in reality, that was Jerry and I coming up with it together. And I think that the majority of decks in Magic are two-plus people collaborating and then one person getting most of the royalties, for lack of a better, in terms of, like, who built the deck because they're the person that did well with it. And ever since I became, like, a full-time streamer or semi-full-time streamer, however you want to classify me, uh, you know, I stopped playing the bigger events. And so the people who play a lot, who do play the big events, they don't really look at me as a threat. And so the things that I say don't really hold weight with them but what i am able to do is build new decks that like function in terms of like pure ideology and then other people take those ideas and iterate upon them and then use them to win events and the people that are below that level right those are usually the people who are coming to me on my patreon like looking for cyborg guides for fnm and looking for cool new strategies for pioneer because it's just They just enjoy playing the game. And those are the people that I enjoy talking to, well, way more than people who, like, you know, are way smarter than me or whatever. Because the people who are way smarter than me don't really give a shit what I have to say. But the people that are, like, coming to me for help, um, you know, winning their RCQ, those are the people that I really enjoy engaging with. And those are the people who I think do offer the respect uh, in terms of, like, what my legacy in magic is really about and uh and i and i do appreciate them in quite a bit
0: i'll tell you what todd as i was asking the question i i could i knew that it's just a challenging thing because the whole concept of deck creator and attribution and someone winning with a deck versus contributing to a deck even things like you said like when willie told you about eldrazi monument like does that credit belong to him? Does right. it belong to the person who made it into right. a, a streamlined 75? Does it belong to, does the credit go to the person who wins the Pro Tour with it? But I, I think, I think the important thing here is that, as you said, you know what you did. You know that you 100% contributed to defining certain things that made people successful. And I would have to hope that the people who did well with your ideas, they also know what you did. So it's not that important that the general public, someone, some, some, some rando like me knows that you did it or not. It's important that within your player group, you you are respected or you're you're you are seen as someone who did that, right?
1: You know, uh, I didn't really consider myself to be a, a good deck builder for a long time. Uh, whenever we worked for Star City Games. One of the uh, common asks when a new set come out, when a new set would come out, would be build a bunch of decks around this new card. Like pick a card, build a bunch of decks around it. And I hated doing that because I didn't get to physically play with the decks I was building, and so I was unable to essentially hone the deck down into like a, a what I would consider to be like a fighting shape version and instead i'm just kind of like shooting deckless off and whenever we would play on versus live my decks would get destroyed because they're like the purest form iteration of the deck before you start pulling away from the core identity to shore up weaknesses Uh, every deck uh, start that i build um, comes from an old philosophy from a friend of mine when i was very young um he said to always start building your decks with maximum redundancy and so if you can play eight elves play eight if you can play 12 play 12 and then over time you'll see where your weaknesses lie and you can pair back and so once you realize like oh i have too many card draw effects or i have too many tutors or i have too many of this or that you pull back and you add a couple more removal spells or a couple more things that can alleviate some pressure from your opponent until you've ultimately have a viable deck. Um, playing on the Pro Tour for so long, you realize that the people who were most successful were often those that had large play groups where they were able to essentially find all the flaws and remove the flaws from those early decks. And uh, for those of you who don't remember, almost every single Pro Tour was two weeks after a set's release. And so um, you just did not have a functional deck unless... You had some group to play test with, and over time, unless you
0: have a brain trust,
1: right? Yeah. Right. Um, the uh, running of like the S C G tour was a huge place for you to test those ideas, and often I would play uh, the first or second week of, of a new uh, format uh, that the S C G tour is hosting, and that's where like Dungrove Dungro Elder came from, or whatever. Where I just like built this deck I thought was cool, did well with it. Then I played at the Pro Tour the next week. Uh, it was my best Pro Tour finish ever. But I had a place to run a trial by fire. And uh, the testing groups all had that. And I was just a nobody from Alabama, man. I didn't know anyone. Like, I didn't have a super group. I didn't have a testing group ever. Like, maybe three Pro Tours I ever played, I had a testing group. And so, uh, whenever you're just like constructing a new deck, you just have no idea truly how good it is until you play it for the first time. And I hated building decks that way because you're just firing into the air blindly in hopes that you hit something. And uh, and so I never considered myself to be uh, like a prolific deck builder. But at some point on uh, Jerry Thompson's podcast, uh, it's Arena uh, De- uh, Deckless is the name of the podcast now. But uh, at some point... He just mentioned me as one of the best deck builders he'd he'd interacted with. And I was thrown for a loop. I'd never
0: never really thought so of you never thought of yourself that way. Yeah, right?
1: I was a tuner, man. I, I I took an idea that someone else had and I would make it better. And that that was kind of like what I like to do. But that's what it's about. Like most
0: of the time that's what it's about. Yeah. It's those eight cards, right?
1: Yeah, but you know, it's just like like you said, man, I, I just never really thought of myself like that because I was rarely the person that was like, oh, this two card combo, this is the messed up thing. Uh nowadays though, when I'm when I'm brewing on stream, that's all that I like to do. That's all that I'm trying to do is find Tyvar plus Priest of Forgotten Gods. I'm trying to find Rona plus Retraction Helix Mox Amber. And uh more recently, like, you know, someone on Twitter was just like, Hey, this Wild Growth Walker plus Amalia combo is pretty insane. And so I just spent like three days working on that and came up with. Hell yeah.
0: I mean, that's a revolution right there. Right. And I just came up
1: with like a cool list that I really liked and I wrote about it and people really enjoyed it. And um, I'm planning on doing a lot of that in the next week whenever they do the bands because everything's going to change. And it's like the Wild West, man.
0: So you still find joy in the game in your own ways. Like you're you're evolving as a player, and uh, you're you're learning. Still, you're still a student. It sounds like yeah. taking inputs from the community.
1: Absolutely, man. Um, playing on stream, building decks uh, by myself. You know, showing them to the world, uh, and then other people having success with them. There's like not really a better feeling.
0: I don't know. Before I let you go, I gotta ask you about this uh, non Magic topic. Uh oh. Uh oh. Never played the game. Lorcana. oh okay okay you started a podcast about this i did right yeah. uh what is it about Lorcana? like other than the disney brand and the ip like is it is it that good of a game like i have no idea i know there's a there's an emulator you can play it on because you've been you talked about it i think before in your yeah. tweets like um yeah as someone like me who's never tried this game like can you sell me on the game Okay, so the
1: lead designer uh, used to work on Magic in the 90s, early 2000s. um, And they have created a game that I think is not only functional, but the engine itself is robust. Um, Their first set that they came out with, which, you know, we're basically playing one set constructed or whatever had roughly six viable archetypes that were all pretty decent with two floating to the top. Uh, They just released their second set. And I think that um, it actually has probably made the, the format a bit worse because it essentially is just like that same deck that was already the best deck just kind of gravitated more towards the top because it got the most new tools. But as far as the game is concerned, it's a good engine. And if they are, Uh, on top of it in terms of banning stuff that's problematic or format management in general, I think they're going to be very successful. Uh, But they're going to be successful for a couple reasons. Um, The first reason is that the game is good. The second reason is that it is a universally loved IP. And uh, they have so much to draw from in terms of Resources from the characters uh, that exist at Disney that they're never going to run out of ideas because they are essentially creating cards that are snapshots of the very popular characters in random situations. And they have also gotten license from Disney to change the scenarios in which these characters uh, can exist in. For example, uh, Gaston from uh, Beauty and the Beast There's a new version of him that's, uh, they call it uh, Floodborne or Dreamborn, where it's like a made-up version of the character. And in this reality, he's smart. Instead of like a big, dumb guy, he's like a genius. And so like his character in the card does something that another smart character does, but it's Gaston, right? But it's just like... uh, I don't know. It's just like a, a, the "what if" series from Marvel, uh,
0: but yeah, you can. They can do alternate universe Disney, basically. Exactly,
1: and and so if if I just told you that it's uh, very similar to Magic in terms of complexity, um, the engine is uh, pretty strong, and the design team clearly knows what they're doing in terms of just like making things that are fun or explosive. Uh, I, I I think that uh, the game's got a very bright future. Uh, I tried my best to, to, to kind of jumpstart, you know, organized play with uh, a big invitational that we did. You know, it was only 16 people big. We invited 12 competitors. We had four slots up for grabs. Uh, we got some sponsors. We gave away 5,000 bucks and it was by all metrics, a success in terms of like the first of, of a thing. And I'm very happy with what we did. And I look forward to doing more in the future. Um, with that said, I don't know that the company itself has big plans for organized play, but I think that there's enough interest in the game that uh, they'll have something going in the next year or two. And if you like playing Magic tournaments, you should try Locana. It's really fun.
0: Do you often dabble in other card games other than Magic?
1: I have spent my life uh, just picking a thing that i enjoy and just running it into the ground and when i was growing up in alabama there was a local game store i went to called uh, legion formerly empire comics that's how they always answered the phone because they had to change their name for legal reasons uh they would have a big play group that would regularly stop playing magic and start playing another game for a few months and i would always jump the shark you know jump to the next game with them and uh, I played, you know, Dot .hex sign card game. I played uh, this one awesome card game called Magi Nation. And I was the youngest of my play group, and I put them all in the dirt. They hated me.
0: <laughs> so you pick up these things pretty quickly then.
1: I try to. And I mostly just really like being uh, good at stuff. And I don't love jumping to new games because learning a new game often takes uh, a lot of time and, and energy and when I'm like really invested in something like Magic, playing a game that's uh, very similar to Magic often has diminishing returns because the uh, people who play one are often the same that play the other. And so the the player pool uh, of people who can hand me $5 is just significantly lower than what it could be. And uh, mm-hmm. when we started this podcast, like I just want to be clear that I know that I'm not going to be making money off this podcast for at least a year, maybe multiple years. But I started uh, in such a way where I gave myself uh, a lot of runway, where uh, the group that I'm working with are all like really talented individuals who uh, really know their stuff. From our video editor, Dan May, my co-host is Harlan Fear, another very decorated player from the SCG Tour Days. Um, And he even he even won our invitational, which is, you know, you know, uh, inside info or whatever, I guess. I don't know, but the fact that he won looks good, but it also looks kind of bad. But um you know, uh, the game is good. The podcast is going great. It's called uh, Lost Boys Lorcana. Uh, we just call us the Lost Boys. It's uh, at Lost Boys L O R on uh, Patreon, on YouTube, and on Twitter. And if you're interested in Lorcana, you can check us out there. Um, but uh, I really enjoy playing the game, talking about the game. I I bought one booster box. That was all I could buy because the first set was just extremely hard to get. Um, but we play often on uh, an emulator. It's a fan-made emulator called Pixelborn that has a functional engine. Uh, it, it like does everything for you when you cast a card. Uh, it's very fluid, and it's made by one guy. So... I hope that one guy gets hired by uh, Raven or Ravensburger to make their digital client because he's already made it and it's good. And they could just,
0: that's a great opportunity for Ravensburger. They could just give him
1: the opportunity, you know, to hire a team to really make it great. And because it's already pretty good in this one dude.
0: Yeah. Well, Hey, thank you Todd so much for uh, taking the time to to talk to me today. It was a pleasure. I I, I, yeah, this is so fun, and this is one of the the more uh, magic strategy episodes I've had for Humans of Magic, and it's awesome because you're just someone who loves magic, and it just really shows. Like, uh, you know, you just love talking about the game. And uh, uh, thank you so much uh, for for taking the time.
1: Well, thanks for having me, James. It was a pleasure, man. Uh, you know, like you said, I, I do really love magic, and a lot of that comes from just being hyper competitive as a child, but. Uh, I'll say this. I, I used to watch my stepdad read books on bridge. And whenever I asked him about bridge, he just like wouldn't tell me about it because it was like too complex or whatever. And, uh, and now all I ever want to do is talk about the thing that I am really interested in uh, so that other people don't feel stupid and they can get good at the, the thing that they like.
0: There you go. Todd Anderson, breaking things down, breaking the complex into simple for the every, man or woman or person, I think that's, uh, that's the Tandy brand, I hope. Thank you for listening to Humans of Magic. You've made it to the end. Thanks so much. You're awesome. If you'd like to support the show, there are two ways to do so. The first way is the most powerful. Tell a friend, tell them to check out Humans of Magic. I'd love it if you could spread the word. The second way is to join the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Patreon is the best way to directly support the show from a financial perspective. For as little as $2 a month, you can support me and join the Discord. It gives me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. If you want to go the $5 support route, you'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you, as always, making it all the way to the end, and we'll see you next time.